Five minutes after 6 a.m. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Tuesday. It's our nine days format Tuesday on this fifth day in the month of Menachem Av. In what is essentially a 10-day uh, observance this year, since Sunday is the 10th of Av, and that's when we're going to be fasting uh, for the fast of the 9th of Av this year. <clears throat> we um, switch uh, in this... Uh, period of time to an spoken word format, and Rabbi Beryl Wine has uh, already started things off for us yesterday with his uh, series on Jewish values. We are up to the um, section of his Jewish values series that deals with family. Here he is, Rabbi Beryl Wine, on a Tuesday morning at JM in the AM. Family is a very difficult uh, topic to discuss because it's... uh sensitive, emotional, and uh, everybody has their own stories to tell about it. But family as a value uh, is the, one of really the basic pillars of Judaism. The Rabboni Shalom said to us, Rak eschem yodati mikol Your family do I know from all of the families which exist in the world. And uh, Judaism, which is a faith, uh, Jews are a nation, Jews are a race, Jews are a religion, but Jews are a family. And we see ourselves as being a family. And the family has uh, ups and downs, but a family has a bond uh, that is able to span all generations and really that indicates more than anything else what the Jewish people are. If we were not a family, for instance, we would not have been able to accomplish the ingathering of the exiles which has taken place here in the land of Israel over the last 60 years. And people from all parts of the world, uh, different cultures, uh, different experiences, different colors, uh, different traditions, but because it's family, it's family. I uh, always uh, think of uh, the famous story with Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, in New York. Uh, the Soloveitchiks are well known for their family affiliation, uh, no matter uh, what or who you are. If you're related to them, so then, uh, then they'll go through anything for you. So... Uh, he was in his uh, heyday as a, uh, as a Rosh Yeshiva. He was saying the shir in Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Yitzchok Honen in New York. And uh, he was a terror. I mean, he, uh, 
the, the students, uh, he brooked uh, no uh, comments and uh, silly questions. And, you know, you sat there in awe. And uh, once he was teaching, uh, and he explained a matter, uh, a difficult matter in the Talmud, and the student had the temerity to raise his hand and say, Rebbe, Rebbe Aaron doesn't say like that. So Rabbi Soloveitchik assumed that Rabaran meant Rabaran Cutler, the, uh, the other major Rosh Yeshiva in America, the founder of the Lakewood Yeshiva, the Kletzka Rosh Yeshiva. So he waved them off, you know, he kept on going. But the student persisted. And after another minute, he raised his hand and he said, Rebbe, but Rabaran doesn't say like that. So now Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, fixed him with an atomic look. And he said, uh, who cares what Rebaran says, right? Where, uh, and he kept on going. The student does it for a third time. He raises his hand and he says, Rebaran, Rebbe, Rebaran does not say like that. So now Rebbe Soloveitchik is, you know, the steam is coming out from his ears. And uh, he says, I don't care what Rabbi Cutler says. And the student said, no, not Rabbi Aaron Cutler, your brother Rabbi Aaron. He said, oh, get up and say what he says, please. <laughs> the Torah saw the Jewish people as a family. And therefore, family became a value. And the preservation of family is, one could say, the primary value in Jewish life. When God chooses Avraham Avinu to be the father of our people, and the one that brings monotheism to the world, to other civilizations as well, so God does not list his piety, nor does God list his intelligence, nor does he even list the sacrifice and the risk of life that Avraham Avinu undertook in order to promote monotheism, that he went into the furnace of fire, or the ten nisionos that he had, none of that is listed. The Rabboni Sholem says, Why did I choose Avraham? Ki yodativ l'man asher He will be able to build a family. He'll be able to inculcate it in his children and in generations that come afterwards, that they will go in the path of God and they'll continue in his mission. So it makes Avram, and we call him Avram Avinu, Avram our father. We don't call him by any other name. We call him our father. So what makes Avram Avram is family. And therefore, the Chumash Breshis deals only with the story of family, Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef, the brothers. So the family there also has ups and downs, has misunderstandings and disputes. But at the end of the Parsha, at the end of the Chumash, at the end of the story, the Jewish people are a family. And that became our hallmark. And the Torah says, You're not allowed to close your eyes 
to your relatives, to your family. And therefore, Jews are bound together by a bond of blood, not only by a bond of faith. That's a very, very important thing because it colors our entire attitude. It enables us, you know, somehow to be able to uh, rise above all of the problems that we have and all the differences that we have. And we're a very fractious people. We have always been. And we're able to rise above all of that because, you know, it's my brother. So let's hear what he has to say. In our time, in our generation, over the last 35 years, especially in Western civilization, in the United States, in Europe, and here in Israel as well, unfortunately, the family has been under siege. The traditional concepts, marriage, children, family, two parents in a home, all of that has been uh, decimated. I want to read for you a uh, portion of an article that appeared in the New York Times. Uh, I think it was either last Saturday or Sunday. Uh, the article is written by a man by the name of David Brooks. And he uh, imagines that he meets Karl Marx today. And Karl Marx tells him that his old manifesto and what he said about the working class and about the uh, capitalism, etc., uh, he admits that all of that is wrong, right? That's been disproved. But he has a new manifesto. And the new manifesto, uh, he uh, writes about it, what Marx would say today. And here is one uh, point that he makes uh, that's really significant and significant, I think, to our conversation here this evening. He said, more than the Roman emperors, more than the industrial robber barons, the male factors of the educated class seek not only to dominate the working class, but to decimate it. For 30 years they have presided over failing schools, without fundamentally attempting to transform them. They have imposed a public morality that affords them maximum sexual opportunity, but guarantees maximum domestic chaos and ruin for those who are lower down the ladder. In 1960, there were not big structural differences in the United States between rich and poor families. In 1960, more than 75% of poor couples were headed by a married couple. Now, less than a third are. While the rates of single parenting have barely changed for the educated elite, the family structure has disintegrated for those lower down the oppressed masses. Poor children are likely to live with, are less likely to live with both biological parents, hence less likely to graduate from school, less likely to get a job, 
less likely to be in a position to challenge the hegemony of the privileged class. Family inequality produces income inequality from generation to generation. It generates crime, violence, and eventually the destruction of society. Well said, Carl. Because that's what happened. So that you have entire generations that grow up without family, without a sense of family. And without that sense, uh, the child is automatically disenfranchised, sees the world through skewed eyes, is at a disadvantage. And the Torah came to emphasize the importance of family. And therefore, amongst Jews, which were always, we were persecuted, 99% uh, of all Jews in the exile were poor. It's not like it is today. This is the most affluent generation in Jewish history. Absolutely the most affluent generation. And we take it for granted that it's supposed to be that way. Uh, but it was not that way. It was not that way uh, as late as uh, 45 years ago. It was not that way. But even in the poorest of families, there was a structure. There was a family. Somebody was home for you. Somebody cared about you. And therefore, the people could be successful. But if there is no family structure, and if it's all ad hoc, so then uh, we live in a time of great difficulties. And we see it here in our country as well, the crime rate. Every day you hear another murder, uh, two murders, three This was a country that never had a murder. When they built the first... Uh, prison in Tel Aviv in the 1920s, so the prison stood empty for three years. They didn't have any customers. And then one day in Tel Aviv, the police finally caught a ganiv, they caught a thief, so Bialik wrote a poem in honor of the occasion because he said, now at least we're a normal people. So I said, oh, we're plenty normal. Because the breakdown of family eventually leads to the breakdown of society. It gives rise to all of the ills that we are aware of. So it says in the Torah, We will have it uh, shortly in the Chumash Bamidbar. Uh, Moshe heard that the people uh, wept, the families wept. So the Gemara says, what does it mean, bochel mishpachosov? It should say, hamishpachot bachu, the families wept. What's bochel limishpachosov? To the, to the Indian, to the uh, idea, of, regarding the idea of family. So the Gemara says, al iske mishpachosov. They wept. Because of the fact that now that they had the Torah, the Torah emphasized family. It limited them. It limited them sexually. It limited them in social values. It kept them at home. It gave them a different sense of responsibility. They wanted to have the freedom. 
They want it to be of a generation that does whatever it wants to do. Everything goes. And therefore, that's why they wept. They wept over the fact that family means responsibility. And that without family responsibility, not only the Jewish people have no future, individual Jews have no future, and society general generally has no future. The rabbis emphasized family to such an extent that they said uh, wild things, uh, at least on the surface. Rabbi Lezer says, Bitcha Bogra, you have a daughter that's old enough to get married, and you can't find the suitable shidduch. Shach you have a slave, free the slave and marry him off to her. Now, what's that? That is the emphasis on family. The emphasis on family is such that for the sake of family, as we'll see in a few moments here, I hope, we'll see that the rabbis advocated great compromises, personal compromises, for the sake of family. And uh, in our world uh, where uh, matchmaking has gone wild, where it's uh, almost, uh, it would almost be uh, humorous if it weren't so tragic. Uh, the Torah looked at it differently. And that's what Rabbi Eliezer said. Family is an overriding value. It even overrides uh, the search for the perfect mate. Because uh, basically... Uh, Except for rabbis, they're hard to find. And uh, so all of life is compromised. Family is compromised. Marriage is compromised. But if the value of family is primary, if that's the priority in life, and the priority in Jewish life, so then it overrides uh, many times uh, personal wants and ideas. So we're going to have two sides to the question, uh, which the Gemara discusses and does not ever come to a conclusion. One side of the discussion is uh, not to bring into one's family people that are not proper. They will disrupt the family. So the Gemara teaches us, for instance, Echod minoachin shenoso isho sheno geneslo. There's a family that one of the sons marries a woman who is not proper for him. Now, Eino in its uh, Talmudic sense, in the sense of halacha, means that she was forbidden to him. It's a relationship which the halacha forbids. But in its broadest sense, it means it's just not fitting. It's not right doesn't belong in that family. So the Gemara says, Boyin Bnei Mishpocha, that was the custom 
in the time of the Talmud. The other members of the family came, Umevin Chovis Mleo Peros, and they brought a barrel, a bushel full of fruit. And in the mid, they would put it down in the middle of the street. Everybody would then be looking, and they would break the barrel, or break the bushel open so that the fruit would roll on the street. And people would say, what what is that about? The Omrim, and they would say, Our brothers, the children of Israel. Shimu, listen to us. Achinu Ploni, our brother so and so. And they said his name. Noso Isho Sheino Ogeneslo has married a woman that's improper. As, therefore, he has damaged our family. And he's damaged the society as well. And we want you to know about it. And we see in the Gomorrah, we'll see in a minute that the Gomorrah is in favor of uh, public acknowledgement that it was a mistake, rather than to cover it up. Because by covering it up, there's an acquiescence to it. I have this que- I've had this question so many times in, uh, in my rabbinic career. It's tragic, but it's the question that exists, and certainly in the American rabbinate. Right? This, he's an Orthodox Jew. you got a cousin and the cousin is going to marry a non-Jew. And his aunt, uh, who was his beloved aunt, and who went to every birthday party, and, uh, you know, and they always had, his aunt insists that he should come to the wedding. They should be, you know, because what can we do? We have to make her closer, we have to bring her, you know. And, and, uh, shall he go? So my answer was always a resounding no. They can do what they want, but you don't have to be part of it. And so then I would get a call from the aunt. And, uh, you know, so I always ended up the villain. But this Gemara shows us uh, that... uh, you know, that if we have to break the bushel in the street and say it's not proper, it's not proper. There has to remain some standard of what a family is. And if everything goes as it does in today's world, there is no standard. So then, Ma said, and what's the noise about? How, how can you uh, begin even to attack the problem of intermarriage? If you accept it as a fact and you accept it as uh, something that uh, in many instances is even overlooked. I even had a worse scenario, but that was when I was younger. So I was, uh, you know, when you're younger, you know a lot. As, As you get older, you know less and less. So I was really uh, young then, I think it was the first or second year that I was in the Rabonis, and someone came to me that uh, uh, their relatives uh, were having a bar mitzvah, and the bar mitzvah was going to be celebrated in a non-Orthodox congregation. And what should we do? So uh, I told them not to go. 
So they said, how can we not go? It's our relative, it's a close relative and everything, and we won't go to Davin there. And they, uh, I said, yeah, I said, I'm not telling you what to do. You asked me what, uh, you know, my opinion. That's my opinion. And what happened is that they didn't go. And because they didn't go, it made such an impression on the other relatives that eventually the other relatives became orthodox. Now, I can't guarantee that that's going to happen. But this is an absolute true story. And it's all based on this Gomorrah, right? Without the Gomorrah, I would hesitate to say anything, because how do I know? But the Gomorrah says that for the preservation of the standards of family, it should be dealt with strongly. It should not be covered over. And even though it's an embarrassment, you know, imagine, you know, you go break a barrel of fruit in the middle of the street and you make such an announcement, you know, not nice. But we are looking for an overriding value here. And the overriding value is the preservation of Jewish family and Jewish home. And improper marriages, halachically improper marriages are not the way to secure family or to secure Jewish survival. And Chazal therefore said, Woe to someone who through his behavior uh, makes his generations pasul, really meaning that he hurts their pedigree. And the entire family suffers thereby. We have a great Gemara that says, the Gemara asks, the, the Gemara was discussing uh, uh, the fact that uh, the Romans executed robbers, uh, smugglers, uh, people that did things illegally. And uh, so the Gemara asked, well, you know, the robber, the smuggler, he's got a coming to him. But why should the rest of the family suffer thereby? In other words, in God's system of justice, when the criminal is punished, so uh, let the criminal be punished. I mean, why does the mother have to suffer? You know, we see always that the, 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 the son is a murderer and the mother says he's a good boy. Because that's a mother. So why should it be that the family should suffer as well? The Gemara says a frightening thing. The Gemara says every family that has criminals in the family cover up for them. They cover up. So it's very hard to... Uh, you know, to go against your own flesh and blood. And it's very hard to look realistically at your own flesh and blood. And so what if he's a smuggler? But the Gemara says that since they cover up for him, so therefore they undermine the whole sense of rectitude that exists within the Jewish people, and therefore they are also part of the punishment. So we have here almost a collective guilt not just the guilt of the criminal, of the person alone, but the guilt of everyone around. Because we tolerate it. 
Uh, we could say that about our society here also. We tolerate a lot of things that we know are wrong, that we're embarrassed about. But uh, who wants to get mixed up? Who wants to say anything? But though we who tolerate it are also tarred by that brush. You know, we are also damaged by it. We are, so to speak, part of the corruption also. And the Gemara is very, uh, very strong in this area. Makes very, very few allowances. Because of the fact that, again, this is the overriding value That's one side of the coin. Right? So one side of the coin is uncompromising, right? Now, you have the other side of the coin uh, to protect my family. The Gemara says a case in the Dorim that a man comes before the Bezdin and he said, I, uh, I uh, pledge to become a Nozir to take the vows of Naziru to be, uh, uh, you know, to uh, not to shave for 30 days and not to drink wine and to be celibate and to stay away from all troubles. I take all of that upon myself on the condition that I will not reveal what I know about my family. I won't reveal what's wrong with my family. Now, the rule is that we go to all lengths to prevent people from becoming a Nazir. The Gemara says that uh, Shimon Atzadik, the great Kohen Godel, uh, never participated in the uh, sacrifice of a Nazir because he said, uh, isn't it not enough what the Torah forbade for you? You've got to make it more yet, right? The, the Torah said that... Uh, you know, uh, you can drink wine, and you don't want to drink wine. The Torah said that you can you know, take a haircut and be uh, presentable, and you want to be on camp. The Torah, therefore, he would not participate. Except there was one case, one case he said where he felt that the man was truly a nazir, and he took upon himself the vows of nazirus in order to prevent himself from sinning. The Gemara says that he was uh, so handsome and that, that it was uh, like it was impossible for him to resist on his own with the evil inclination. And therefore, in order to strengthen himself, he took upon himself the vows of Nazir. So that was the only time that Shimon Atzadik said he saw a legitimate Nazir. So our public policy is to be against the Nazir. Here comes a man before us. And we can get him out of being a Nazir. We just have to say, okay, so tell us what you want to tell us about your family. The Gemara says just the opposite. Let him be a Nazir. And let him not break the confidence of his family. So here you have an exact opposite of what we had before. Before, you know, you take a bushel of fruit and you're breaking it in the middle of the street and you're saying, you know, my brother so-and-so, he married a woman that he shouldn't have married when we said before that the, he's a smuggler, you know. And here the Gemara says that, well, don't reveal anything. So, 
the Mephorshim discussed this, the commentators to the Talmud. It's discussed what, how to reconcile, if it's reconcilable. Uh, but the general rule is, what will preserve the family? What is in the best interest of the family? So there are times that the best interest of the family is to make a whole tumult about it and to reveal and to, and to make accusations, and that will save the family. And there are times that what saves the family is to be quiet about it. How do you know what to do when? So that we have no instruction book. Because that's true of most of the Torah. And most of the Talmud, certainly, we have conflicting ideas all the time. Different policies. So how do I know which policy I should follow? So if you're blessed with a great rabbi or a Hasidic mentor, or someone to ask, so then their advice could be valuable. But even then, the decision is always ours. And that's really what makes life interesting, is because we're not certain that we have ever made the right decisions. The Talmud tells, that, tells us that regarding Joseph and his brothers. Now there's a family matter. Why did a brother sell Joseph? What's, what's got into them? They see him as a threat to the entire family. He speaks evil about them. Uh, he estranges them from their father. He invents stories about them. He's, he's a danger. The whole family will be destroyed by this 17-year-old uh, teenager who, uh, you know, who has no sense of proportion as to what's going on. And therefore they decide that in order to save the family, they have to destroy the brother. So, we all know the story. They sell him. 22, year late, 22 years later, they meet him. And at the end, he says to them, Ani Yosef, I'm Yosef. I'm the one that you sold. So in the Gemara, it says that the brothers couldn't, the brothers were in shock. They were traumatized. They couldn't respond to him. So the Bali Musers say, and the great men of the Muslim movement, they say what was part of their trauma, aside from the shock of seeing Yosef, was that until now they had thought that they had done the right thing. Until now they were convinced that they had saved the family. And because they were convinced that they saved the family, they were willing to put up with Jacob's grief all the years to see their father weep and weep, and they knew the truth, and they never told it to him because of the fact that they were going to save the family. They were going to save the future generations. Now, all of a sudden, he says, Ani Yosef, here I am, and you all got to come down here, and I'm going to save you and bring my father down, and here's Binyamin, my brother. So then they realized that they made a mistake. Instead of saving the family, they almost destroyed the family. 
And therefore they were frightened. Uh, the Gemara says, Oilonu miyomadin, oilonu miyomatochocha. Woe to us from the day of judgment. Because the brothers were going to come to heaven and say, we save the family at all at its expense and pain and everything. But look, we saved our family. We have a mitzvah. And now the mitzvah turned into an avera. The positive turned into the negative. And the Torah purposely tells us that story to realize uh, that it's treacherous ground that we're on. It's not simple. There are many times in families where uh, there's a child that requires special needs. So many times in such families, the other children... But to a certain extent are neglected because of it. How do you make such choices? How do you know what to do? Now life is difficult. Family life is doubly difficult. But the overriding value here that Chazal emphasized is that a person has to do what is good for the family. Sometimes it's clear. Most times in life it is not clear. Most times it is confusing. And therefore, uh, counselors, uh, experts, uh, spiritual uh, leaders are necessary to help us. That we should have some sort of idea of uh, which side uh, this matter falls on. What we should do. The Rabboni Shalom, the Gemara says, is proud of the Jewish family because it has yichus. Now, yichus in its popular sense uh, means that uh, you're uh, descended from the Rothschilds or that uh, your grandfather was a great Rosh Hashiva or something like that. That's uh, Rebbe, that's yichus. But the Gemara doesn't, the Gemara is not talking about that kind of yichus. Again, we're going to see here two opposites. I want you to leave this lecture thoroughly confused. And I have the great ability to do so. <laughs> so, Yichus in the Gemara means that there is no uh, illegal, non-halachic marriage in the family. That's what Yichus is. That's the bottom line of Yichus. And the Gemara says uh, the Kohanim, when they got married would check back certain amount of generations. And the Gemara said that if there were certain presumptions regarding uh, a family, so then that was su sufficient. You didn't have to check anymore. But Yichus is important. And therefore the Gemara says that the Rabboni Shalom, so to speak, cho chose the Jewish people because we have a book of Yichus. And when the nations of the world came to complain that God is not fair in somehow choosing the Jewish people and dealing with them, so he said, Bring me your Yichus book. Well, the nations of the world, uh, the Yichus book is pretty uh, blotched. And that's why it says, Hovu Lashem Mishpachos Amim. Bring to God, show me your families. Show me your sense of families. 
And therefore, uh, Yichus became very important. The Gemara says, Ashchina shore rak al mishpochus miyuchosos shevi Yisrael. The Shechina descends only on Jewish families that have Yichus, that do not have within their family improper marriages, improper relationships. And then the Gemara raises the ante. The Gemara is much in favor that when a man looks for a spouse, he should marry the daughter of a Talmud Chochem. Le'olam yimkor odom kol lo, the Gemara says. A person should sell everything that he has. So it doesn't mean only to sell everything. It means he should overlook many things. V'yelech v'yisa bas Talmud Chochem. And he should go and marry the daughter of a Talmud Chochem. Of a, of a Torah scholar. Rashi there says a terribly practical reason. Rashi says because if he dies, she'll raise the children to be Jews. Others give more, uh, what shall I say, more attractive reasons. And she has uh, good manners, she saw Torah in her house, etc., etc. But the Ba'as Talmud Chochem is, uh, is supreme. Right? The Gemara, by the way, has harsh things to say about people who marry for money. That's a Gemara that is famous by not being taught. And uh, the, the Gemara, by the way, uh, you know, uh, the Gemara is very hard-headed in these matters. The fact that our world is uh, 180 degrees opposite from the Gemara doesn't change the Gemara. Doesn't change what the Gemara says, and doesn't change what, what what's right. So, Yichus is important. I'll tell you a Gemara that, 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 you know, that to me always shocked me. The Gemara says, A person should always look to come into a family of goodness, of good people, righteous people. What's the proof? Sharei Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Shenoso Bas Yisro, that he married into the family of Yisro, so Yisro is a Ger Tzedek, and Sipor is certainly a Tzitkonius, but it's a Gornit Geholfen. Yotza Mimenu Yonason, he had a grandson that was a priest to idolatry. It says in the Tanakh, Yonason it says Ben Menashe. But the nun of Menashe is written outside the line, on top of the line, because it's Ben Moshe, but the Tanakh didn't want to say it fully. So therefore they said Menashe, but they put the nun on top, so if you understand, you understand. If you don't understand, you don't understand. But Moshe Rabbeinu has a grandson. I mean, think about it. Pel Teadaberbo. The greatest of all human beings. 
So he has a grandson that's uh, a priest of Odazora, right? The Aaron, his brother Aaron. So Aaron made the eagle. Aaron, uh, you know, Aaron is blemished. Aaron himself, while Moshe is not. Shenoso Elisheva Bas Aminodov. He married the daughter of Aminodov, the prince of Yehuda, the father of Nachshon. And therefore, Yotza Mimenu Pinchas. So his grandson is Pinchas, that's going to be Makari Shem Shemayim. That the Rabboni Shalom will save an Asati Lobrisi Shalom. I have a special covenant of peace for him. So, I mean, the Gemara is a shock, right? I mean, who would say this? But the Gemara wants to emphasize the importance of family. So if you marry into the family of Yisro, so even if you're Moshe Rabbeinu, Yisro's genes come down somehow, you know, just like there are genetic qualities that exist in the physical world, right? The doctors today say that from our DNA, they can almost predict what's going to happen to us. I don't like to go to such a doctor. (laughs) But they can predict. Because we are... uh, within a certain genetic box, right? There are exceptions. Rabboni Shalom uh, still runs the show, but basically, uh, you know, it's pretty clear what's going to be. Well, just as there are physical genetics, there are spiritual genetics as well. That's one of the beliefs of the Jewish people. There are spiritual genetics as well. And so, therefore, Yisro and his family, that's a recessive gene. The Gemara says that the Harid Avraham have Yishmoel because he had a father Terach. And how did Yitzhak has Esau because he had a grandfather, a great a grandfather Terach. So it's a gene in you. And then in Kabbalah they talk about the Birur, about clearing out the genetics. Pushing the recessive genes out completely so they don't exist. The, uh, when the Jewish people went out from Egypt, there was an Erev Rav that went out with them. A whole mixture of people, and they, were all, they all got swallowed into the Jewish people somehow over the ages. So a lot of what you see in the Jewish people today is that those are the genetics. That's part of the hesitation that exists regarding conversions. You know, we say mass conversions, right? You know, we got 300,000 non-Jewish Russians here in the country, you know, put them all into Teddy Stadium and we'll do it one, two, three and get it over with. Because they fight in the army, they're good guys, they're fine people, and they came here, and they speak Hebrew, So let's do it. But Jewish people have different sensitivities, have a different different history. And therefore, you have to be careful. And you have to be exact. There's no such thing as mass conversions. There's conversions of individual people. 
that are zolcha to come under the Shechina. And therefore, you have this uh, wariness, so to speak, about Yichus. I mean, today it's stretched beyond, uh, you know, like uh, what color tablecloth do they use or something. Right? That, says no, that has nothing to do with the Talmud. That's just, it's, it's almost absurd. Now, let's see the other side of the coin. After we made this point, the other side of the coin, uh, Omar David Lifne HaKadosh Baruch David HaMelech says to God, again, the Medrash puts it into David's mouth, puts this conversation in order to make the point. Ademosai heimisragzin olai v'yomrim Lo posulu. They, they still say about me that I'm posul because he came from Rus. And the, in the Torah it says, Lo yovo Ammonium Moavi, from someone from these two tribes, from Ammon and Moav, was not allowed to convert. So the, the Shmuel and his Bezdin were the ones that made the halacha that they said, Amoni velo Amonis, Moavi velo Moavis. The males are not allowed, but that the females, the conversion is legitimate. So Rus is therefore a legitimate convert, and she becomes the wife of Boaz, and their great grandson is David. But everybody in the street says he's Paul, because he comes from a Moabite woman. They don't care what the rabbis say that what, Amoni below Amoni. You know, the rabbis, they can do what they want, right? But we know better. So David says, how long do I have to take this? That they say that I'm apostle, that I'm of no value. If you'll think about it, it's a very fluky story. Boaz is in his 80s. She's a young woman. We'll continue with this story and more coming up. Or I barrel wine on the uh, topic of family, and we will... Do the last uh, 10 minutes of this lecture coming up here at JMM. Information about uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture series, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com also gets you uh, information via the web about all the uh, different offerings he has, and they are... There are many, many, many offerings that he has, uh, thousands of lectures from over the years. Tuesday morning on this August 9th, day 5 in the month of Menachem Av, the year 5776, Tav and Vav. 72 degrees outside with 78% humidity, winds are west at 4 miles per hour. Sunny today with a high of 87, then tonight mostly cloudy, a low of 74 degrees. Tomorrow, thunderstorms, a high temperature for Wednesday, 84 Yerushalayim right now at 85, a lot at 97 with a high of 106 for today. Wow. <laughs> Up in Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Missouri are enjoying a 52-degree morning. They're going up to 83 later on here, or I should say there, up in Guilford at Camp Missouri. We wish uh, Joseph and Ari and the entire staff a great uh, Tuesday. 
from all of us here at JM and the AM. We're in our nine days format here at JM and the AM and getting ready for a fast day this coming Sunday. The 10th of Av is Sunday, and that's the day this year that we will observe Tisha B'Av. I remind you that there are many different ways that the Tisha B'Av is being observed in the community or being enhanced, I should say, more accurately in the community. I remind you that the um, Mincha prayer service at the Isaiah Wall, which is across from the United Nations, is uh, going to be taking place this coming Sunday at the 2 p.m. And um, it again will focus on Jewish communities in danger and the situation at the moment for our, for our brethren, our brothers and sisters in Israel. So that's going to be happening uh, this coming Sunday at 2 o'clock. Make sure you bring your talis and tefillin. Mincha at the, uh, across the street from the UN at the Isaiah Wall. Uh, that's First Avenue and 43rd Street. Takes place this coming Sunday on Tishabov, the annual Mincha service. In addition, I remind you that the OU is going to have a webcast, and we'll have a chance later in the week to speak about it. The OU is going to be presenting a webcast with Kinos, uh, both with Rabbi Weinrib and Rabbi Weil, taking place in two locations, Jerusalem and Boca Raton. And that will be presented on the website, OU.org. And we'll have an opportunity, as I said, later in the week to discuss this more uh, as we build up to uh, Tisha B'Av and get ready for their annual webcast, which is a brilliant presentation of the Kino service and really helps uh, everybody who tunes in to get in an amazing perspective historically and uh, very often for today of the um, of what the day of Tisha B'Av is all about. So that's happening this coming Sunday. You can go to OU.org for information about that. That's OU.org for information uh, about that. Also, Project Inspire is going to be presenting this Sunday the final two hours of the Tisha B'Av Fest in the Eastern Time Zone, or I should say in the New York area, with Charlie Harari. And we'll have an opportunity tomorrow to uh, get into some of the details regarding that. Um... That'll happen uh, Sunday starting at 7 p.m. Uh, Charlie Harari will lead the uh, last couple of hours of Tisha B'Av as has become a tradition for us. And that's under the leadership of Project Inspire. And again, we'll have more details about that tomorrow right here at JM in the AM. It's a minute before 7 o'clock, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmdm.org, and of course on the NSN app. Galit Tzal in the background, we'll do our news from Israel coming up. Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture series, uh, information available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. You can go to the web at rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com. And you could uh, check out all the different offerings that Rabbi Wine has on so many topics, Jewish history and more. We've been concentrating for the first couple of days of our nine days format on his series of Jewish values. And uh, we'll conclude the lecture having to do with family coming up here at JM in the AM. I want to thank those who are commenting on our app. The uh, app, the NSN app, gives you an opportunity, no matter where you are on this globe, to tune in and be part of this unique broadcast experience 24 hours a day six days a week 
Right now we're in a nine days format uh, through our stream and uh, on the app. And everybody out there who has a uh, an iPhone or an Android, make sure to install the NSN app so you can be part of this unique listening experience on a daily basis. You'll be glad you did. And um, everybody out there uh, who has not yet installed the app, make sure to do so. Don't forget on the home screen, you can comment on the app and let us know what you think of uh, whatever show you're listening to at that very time. Galit Sal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Tuesday follows next. We say Bokato from Jam and the Am. לצהל השעה שתיים, כנהוד גרף עם מה שקורה עכשיו, הותר לפרסום. עובד של האום בעזה נעצר בחשד שפעל למען חמאס. כתבנו אריאל זיגלר. טבק של וחיד עבדאללה בורש, בן 38 תושב הרצועה, עלה כי ניצל את תפקידו באו"ם וסייע לחמאס באופנים שונים, בין היתר סיוע לזרוע הצבאית של הארגון, מתן עדיפות לפעילי הארגון בעניינים הומניטריים, ואף הביא לנפילת אמצעי לחימה על ידיו של הארגון. חקירתו העלתה גם מידע על פעילי חמאס נוספים שפועלים בארגונים הומניטריים, וכתב אישום מוגש נגדו בבית המשפט המחוזי בבאר שבע. בשבוע שעבר נעצר בכיר בארגון וורד ויז'ן בעזה, ששימש אף הוא סוכן של חמאס. שבעה פצועים קל בהתרסקות מטוס זעיר ללא טייס בגלבוע. כתבתנו אורנית פורן. כלי טיס בלתי מאויש של התעשייה האווירית התרסק על גג בית בכפר זלפה, סמוך לוואדי ערה. פרמדיקים של מד"א העניקו טיפול רפואי לשבעה בני אדם שנפגעו כתוצאה משאיפת עשן. הם פונו לבית החולים העמק בעפולה במצב קל. כוחות כיבוי אש השתלטו על האש לאחר שגג המבנה קרס והאש התפשטה לעבר רכב חונה. נסיבות האירוע נבדקות. שר האוצר משה כחלון התייחס לביקורת על הקיצוצים הצפויים בתקציב המדינה החדש וקרא לחברי הכנסת לא להיכנע ללחצים של בעלי עניין. הוא דיבר בפתח ישיבת הקבינט החברתי. בימים הקרובים מן הסתם תשמעו כל מיני קבוצות כוח מאוד חזקות שבוכות איך נגעו להם ואיך גזלו להם. זה קבוצות שמעולם לא נגעו בהן. אנחנו רוצים ליצור מצב של צמצום פערים ככל שניתן. ואני מצפה מחבריי השרים שייתנו גיבוי מלא ולא יתקנו ללחצים לא של לוביסטים ולא של בעלי עניין. כתב אישום הוגש נגד מפקד תחנת חדרה לשעבר בגין מרמה והפרת אמונים. כתבנו קובי מנדל. סגן ניצב אבי מאור מואשם בבית משפט השלום בחיפה שבמשך כשלוש שנים בהן שימש מפקד תחנת חדרה, יצר וניסה ליצור קשרים אינטימיים עם שוטרות צעירות וזוטרות, כשבאחד המקרים מדובר היה בשוטרת בשירות חובה הצעירה ממנו בלא פחות מ-27 שנים. המחלקה לחקירות שוטרים טוענת כי מדובר בקשרים חריגים תוך ניצול מעמדו כמפקד תחנת המשטרה בחדרה. ועד ראשי האוניברסיטאות מאיים כי לא יפתח את שנת הלימודים הקרובה בזמן על רקע כוונת הממשלה לקצץ כמאה מיליון שקלים מתקציב ההשכלה הגבוהה. כתבנו מיכאל האוזר טוב. אם הקיצוץ המתוכנן אכן יתקיים הוא יעמיד בסימן שאלה את יכולתנו לפתוח את שנת הלימודים האקדמית הקרובה, כך אומר היום פרץ לביא, יושב ראש ועד ראשי האוניברסיטאות. למהלך שותפים גם ועד ראשי המכללות והתאחדות הסטודנטים. דיוני התקציב סביב חוק ההסדרים מתקיימים היום ומחר בקבינט, אז ייקבע אם יחול הקיצוץ ועל כמה יעמוד. אחרי ההחלטה יקבעו בוועד ראשי האוניברסיטאות האם לקדם את האיום. מזג האוויר מחר ללא שינוי ניכר בטמפרטורות. אלה החדשות שעורכת חן רביב.
J.M. and the A.M. News from Israel, top of the hour, <clears throat> Monday through Friday here at J.M. and the A.M. at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine is in the midst of a lecture about family from his Jewish Values series. We'll uh, play it to its conclusion for you. Information about his lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. great-grandfather, Tara. So it's a gene in you. In in Kabbalah, they talk about the Birur, about clearing out the genetics, pushing the recessive genes out completely so they don't exist. uh, When the Jewish people went out from Egypt, there was an Erev Rav that went out with them. A whole mixture of people, and they they all got swallowed into the Jewish people somehow over the ages. So a lot of what you see in the Jewish people today is that those are the genetics. That's part of the hesitation that exists regarding conversions. You know, we say mass conversions, right? You know, we got 300,000 non-Jewish Russians here in the country, you know, put them all into Teddy Stadium and we'll do it one, two, three and get it over with. Because they fight in the army, they're good guys. They're fine people, and they came here, and they speak Hebrew. So let's do it. But Jewish people have different sensitivities. They have a different, different history. And therefore, you have to be careful, and you have to be exact. There's no such thing as mass conversions. There's conversions of individual people uh, that are zochet to come under the shechina. And therefore, you have this uh, wariness, so to speak, about yichus. I mean, today it's stretched beyond, uh, you know, like uh, what color tablecloth do they use or something. Right? That, says no, that has nothing to do with the Talmud. That's just, it's, it's almost absurd. Now, let's see the other side of the coin. After we made this point, the other side of the coin uh, Omar David Lifna Kodesh Borchu. David Amelech says to God, again, the Medrash puts it into David's mouth, puts this conversation in order to make the point. Ademosai heimisragzin olai viomrim lo posulu. They still say about me that I'm posul because he came from Rus. And the, in the Torah it says, Lo yovo Ammonium from someone from these two tribes, from Ammon and Moav, was not allowed to convert. So the, the Shmuel and his Bezdin were the ones that made the halacha that they said, Ammoni velo Ammonis, Moavi velo Moavis. The males are not allowed, but that the females the conversion is legitimate. So Rus is therefore a legitimate convert, and she becomes the wife of Boaz, and their great-grandson is David. 
But everybody in the street says he's apostle. Because he comes from a Moabite woman. They don't care what the rabbis say that what? Ammoni below Ammoni. You know, the rabbis, they can do what they want, right? But we know better. So David says, how long do I have to take this? That they say that I'm apostle. That I'm of no value. If you'll think about it, it's a very fluky story. Boaz is in his 80s. She's a young woman. She's a Gioras. You know, Boaz is the head of the Sanhedrin. I mean, it would be the lead story in Yediot. <laughs> fluky story. And they say also that what? That I'm not worthy, not only not to be the king, I'm not worthy to be a Jew. I'm not legitimate. So I say to you, God, listen to him. Afatem, I say to them, Lo bosem achios. Didn't Yaakov marry two sisters? How did he do that? The Tomor, Shalokho Yehuda, and how about the story of Yehuda and Tomor? Right? So that's not the first thing the Shatchan would tell, right? This story. So he says, if I'm apostle, then everybody's apostle. That's what he's saying. And in fact, what he's saying is that there is no family. That if you dig in long and hard enough, you're not going to find something. So therefore, leave it alone. Don't stir up, you know, don't pick up all the rocks because you never know what snake you're going to find under it. Now, in Jewish history, there are all sorts of crazy stories that exist. But for instance, among the Iranian Jews, there was a town, Meshed, uh, that existed in Iran that 300 years ago, the uh, Muslim rulers forced the Jews in the town to convert. But they did not convert to Islam sincerely. And uh, they remained as Jews. And then the decree fell off. But but amongst the many, many Iranians, even until today, they won't marry anybody that came from that town. And that's hundreds of years ago. Or in Poland there was a story of a woman whose husband was away for many years, and somehow she became pregnant. And she said, Deus, Deus ex machina, the God did it, right? Came from God. An angel came, a, a shed, a spirit, right? And, you know, in the small Polish town, so, uh, you know, a lot of these stories went over. So there also, for hundreds of years, nobody would marry anybody from the town. Because maybe they got mixed up into that story. So Bedovid said, you know, if you want to start with me, I'll start with you, right? So how did Yaakov marry Rachel and Leah? And how did Yehuda marry Toma, right? You're worried about Boaz and Ruth, so let's go back. And then the Gemara says, even further, the Medrash says... Avram Avinu, Avram Omar, after the Akedah, 
So the Medrash says, Avram Avinu said, I have to marry off Yitzchak. So he calls in Eliezer, and he sends him to Padan Aram. But the Medrash says, before he sent him to Padan Aram, Omar, he said to Rabboni Shalom, Asienu mibnos oner eshkol amamre. I got women here. The oner eshkol amamre are my uh, friends. They're my converts. They're my students. They're holy and good people. They have daughters. I'll marry them off to my daughter. I'll marry Yitzchak off to their daughter. Why do I have to go somewhere else? Shehem sitkonios, the Medrash says. They were pious women. But they had no yichas. Whereas Rivka had yichas because she came from Avram Avinu's family. She came from Nochor. So Avram says to God, What do I care about yuchsin for? I, why, you know, you see this wonderful girl here? She's perfect. So Avram Avinu is willing. Uh, so God has to tell him, you know, you, you, the God doesn't deny what he says. God says, oh, we just got news that Rivka was born. Rivka is the one for you. That's the, the one that's bashert for him. Yolda, Milka, Gamhi, Bonim, Lenochor, Achicha, right? Rivka, Achosim. Rivka, the sister, also was born. So here they have the other side of the coin, right? We look at the person. We don't look at the Yichas. Navram says, what do I care about the yichas? Let's see what the person is. So here again, you have two opposites. Again, what's the reconciliation here? Who's best for the family? Who will build the family here? Who will make the family whole? Who will see to it that the family will exist? So we see from all of this that the Talmud held that family was a role model. And family is the source of all education. That's the idea that of the article we read before. If there's no family, there's no education. So you send them to school, school is not the best place for education. Chazal say, Shinanton Levonecha. Parents should teach their children. That's the way it's supposed to be. And family is also purpose and future. The family uh, is the, the entire uh, vista of life and of immortality. So we have seen, I hope, that family is this cardinal principle, this overriding value in Jewish life. It defines us as a people, and it gives us an ability uh, to survive over all odds because the strength of the home and the strength of the, of the family is truly the strength of all of Israel. I want to thank you for coming tonight. This J.M. in the A.M. on a Tuesday, nine days format, Rabbi Beryl Wine in the middle of a uh, wonderful series called Jewish Values. That is about family. We're going to get to the uh, lecture about the land of Israel coming up. Tuesday morning on this August 9th, the 5th of Nachemav. Good morning, 72 degrees with sunshine and a high temperature of 87. Tonight, mostly cloudy, a low of 74. Tomorrow, thunderstorms and a high temperature of 84. Yerushalayim is at 85. We're at 72 degrees here at JM in the AM. The uh, Coalition for Jewish Concerns, Amcha, reminds everybody that the Tisha B'Av prayer service at the Isaiah Wall takes place this coming Sunday.
<clears throat> it's going to be um, it's going to be well, that's funny that's funny usually it has a start time I think it's 2 o'clock usually it has a start time but this press release does not have one uh, so let's call it for 2pm I believe that's the start time um, it'll be at the Isaiah Peace Wall, 1st Avenue and 43rd Street, opposite the UN. <clears throat> Information at 212-663-5784, 212-663-5784. The 39th Annual Outdoor Prayer Service for Israel and Endangered Jews Worldwide at the Isaiah Peace Wall, 1st Avenue and 43rd Street, this coming Sunday on Tishabov. Bring your towels and fillin'. I always plan on being there. I don't remember if I, I think I was there last year, if I'm not mistaken. Try your best to be there. Um, tonight in Lakewood, New Jersey, the Project Witness documentary, Daring to Rescue, Untold Stories of Jewish Heroism During the Holocaust, will be shown in Lakewood tonight, beginning at 8 p.m. at Tiferes Simcha Hall. It'll be shown uh, tomorrow night in the five towns at the Young Israel of Lawrence Cedarhurst, tomorrow evening, August 10th, starting at 8.30. And it'll be shown tonight up in Muncie at the Yeshiva of Spring Valley, beginning at 8 p.m. as well. Information, 718-WITNESS. That's 718-WITNESS for information about the event uh, in the different locations. Um... The FJCC, in conjunction with Flatbush Hatzala, hosts a free seminar for fathers in the community focusing on how to properly respond to children in critical situations where every moment counts. It's happening tomorrow night, August the 10th, beginning at 8.30 at the Flatbush Hatzala Garage, Avenue N, and Ocean Avenue. It's sponsored in memory of the Sassoon children. Uh, the program is called Be Prepared, Remain Calm, Respond. Know what to do before Hatsala arrives. 8.30 tomorrow night, Flatbush Hatsala Garage and in Ocean Avenue in Brooklyn, 718, or excuse me, 347-729-1940. 347-729-1940. On Twitter, at Flatbush JCC. At Flatbush JCC. Uh, we mentioned Project Inspire. We'll have a chance tomorrow to speak more about it. They have a brand new film for Tisha B'Av 5776. It's called The Formula, a compelling 50-minute film presentation with insights from Rev. Malkiel Cutler and um, closing remarks and a special message by Rapillo David. How to Achieve Guaranteed Success in Avas Yisrael and Bringing Hashem's Children Back to Torah. It's called The Formula. The Tishabov film for this year, and um, we'll speak more about this tomorrow. Project Inspire is going to be handling the uh, the film. And a reminder that tonight, beginning at six forty-five, there is a defensive driving class happening at Congregation Tom Torah in Brooklyn, New York, downstairs at nineteen sixty-six Ocean Avenue between Avenues N. And, oh, that's tonight, 645, a defensive driving class, Tom Torah, downstairs at 1966 Ocean Avenue. That's N and Avenue O in Brooklyn. Save 10% on your New York auto insurance for three years and reduce up to four points in your license. 
A class can be arranged for your stroller or office. Dial this number, 718-339-1300, 718-339-1300. Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures uh, on the, uh, in the series of Jewish Values. Uh, we are up to his presentation on the land of Israel. Rabbi Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Tonight's uh, topic uh, deals with Eretz Israel as a value. Now, and I'm talking as a uh, political statement or as an idea of uh, Jewish nationalism, but as a religious value because this entire series deals with values and the value of Eretz Israel as uh, an idea uh, is one of the most supreme values in all of Torah and all of the Jewish people. I read an article uh, before Yom Yushalayim written by the chief rabbi of Haifa, Rav Shor Yashuv Cohen, uh, who uh, the thrust of the article uh, was a remembrance of his experiences in Yerushalayim. He was captured in the 1948 war. He spent nine months in the Jordanian prison camp. He lost part of his leg. Uh, and he writes about his experiences uh, regarding Yerushalayim over the past 57 years. But one of the things that he pointed out is, uh, and he said it very clearly, he said that Medinat Yisrael, the state of Israel, is meant to be a conduit, is meant to be a means to achieve Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. And in other words, that the state and our nationalism and everything that we have accomplished, that's not the end, that's only the means. And the means... Uh, he quotes naturally from his father, the Nazir, and uh, from Rav Kook, uh, that the physical rebuilding of the Jewish people is a necessary prerequisite for the spiritual rebuilding of the Jewish people. But it is not the end. The end is that spiritual rebuilding, and as he calls it, it's the rebuilding of Eretz Israel, and not just of Medinas Israel. So we speak about Eretz Israel here as a value, as one of the ideas uh, that has been constant throughout Jewish history. And it's been constant, it's interesting whether the Jewish people were here in the land of Israel or whether they were in the diaspora, in the exile. Because uh, we see in the Nevi'im, uh, the Nevi'im always speak about how does Eretz Israel react to the behavior of the people who live there. As though Eretz Yisrael is a living thing. It's not a passive piece of land, but it's a living organism. And this living organism reacts to what happens on it, around it, through it, and that that's the value, uh, that's the idea of what Eretz Yisrael represents. Now, the Jewish people spent most of their history outside the land of Israel. Uh, we're a people that are uh, 33, over 3,300 years old from Yitzhak Mitzrayim. 
and most of the time we have not been here and whenever we have been here uh, it has not been sweetness and light there were periods, good periods the period of Dovid HaMelech, the period of Shlomo HaMelech, 80 years then it started to fall apart uh, in the time of uh, the second temple the period of the Hashmanoim so the first hundred years uh, was a good time and then it fell apart and it's been a difficult, difficult situation always regarding living in the land of Israel and the reason for that is because we are trying to translate a spiritual value into an everyday life, into a state that has to function, into all of the problems of everyday living. It's much easier to deal with it as an imaginary thing because then you never have any disappointments and you don't have to worry about it and you don't have to collect taxes and you don't have the, the whole problem. But how do we make it work practically uh, that is a major challenge, and that challenge has faced the Jewish people every time they've been here in the land of Israel. So we find that uh, during the time of Yoshua and the Shoftim, so during the time of Yoshua, the Jewish people still were afraid of Yoshua because they still were afraid of Moshe. Moshe had such a lasting influence upon them that as long as Yoshua was here, they still thought that Moshe was here. But when Yoshua died, so then Vayibi Shvota Shoftim, we read now in the Megillah of Ruth. Shvota uh, Shoftim Rashi says the judges were judged. The Jewish people said, in effect, Miata, who are you to tell me to do anything? Everybody did whatever they wanted to. It was the ultimate pluralistic society. Do whatever you want. So then it's chaos falls apart so that God has to remind them that they're Jews right, so he sends the Plishtim he sends the Amalekim, he sends the Knanim all sorts of problems and it takes time until David HaMelech comes on the scene uh, that the situation somehow becomes ameliorated now it becomes livable and uh, during the last years of David the last 20 years of David and the first 25, 30 years of Shlomo HaMelech, so then it is finally what Eretz Yisrael is supposed to be. And they build the temple, and everything is wonderful. But people, especially the Jewish people, cannot stand prosperity. They cannot stand that everything should be wonderful, so they have to make it not so wonderful. And Shlomo wanders away, and then there's a rebellion, and Yerovim ben Nevot, and then they split into two kingdoms, and then they become idolaters and pagans, and that's the story. So because of that, Eretz Yisrael is the most sensitive topic to discuss. And I hesitated to put it down on the sheet as one of the values to discuss, because I'm well aware that whatever one says... Uh, can unfortunately be subject to misinterpretation and also because it's so sensitive because we're living here and we're part of it and therefore we feel it perhaps differently than in the theory of Eretz Yisrael the Gemara says Gimel Matonos Nosan Yisrael God gave us three gifts 
And all three come with great pain. The three gifts are Torah. If you want to be a Talmud Chacham, if you want to study Torah, then it's sacrifice, it's Yisurim, it's uh, giving up hours and time. If you really want to be a great Talmud Chacham, so then it requires an enormous amount of concentration, willpower, it's Yisurim. It's not easy. Anyone who has ever opened the Daf Gemara and looked at it, the page itself is sufficient to dissuade you from going further. That three different fonts on the page, it's, uh, it's written in a language that uh, very difficult for us. We don't speak Aramaic anymore. And then you have Rashi on one side and Tosas on the other side, and then you have uh, the Rosh on the back, and nobody agrees on anything with it. It's Biyasurid. If you want to accomplish something, then you have to pay for it. The second thing the Gemara says is Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael comes by Yisurin. It's a matona. So look at the language of the Talmud. The language of the Talmud is that it's a gift. Meaning we're not entitled. The language of matona is always that you're not entitled. It's a gift. There are certain things in life that we think we're entitled to. But there, the Talmud, when it says Matona, so you're not entitled to be a Talmud Chacham, you have to earn it. JM in the AM, Rabbi Beryl Wine is in the midst of a lecture on the land of Israel, part of his Jewish Values series here at JM the AM, 7.30 in the morning on Tuesday, nine days format as we continue here on a JM in the AM, nine days format morning. Uh, information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, Rabbi W-E-I-N. Dot com. 7.30 in the morning, over David Goldwasser's words, Zechanish Masar of Zebin, Rabbi Yosef Alevi, and Esther Basar, Rabbi Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with morning, Chizuk. Good morning. The great Rabbi Yaakov Abu Chatzera, the Abir Yaakov, once came to the home of Abalabayis in Fez. He was extremely tired and dusty from the journey. He changed out of his clothes and requested that they be washed. The woman of the house was happy to oblige. However, being that she had to prepare the meal for the chosh of a guest, she gave Rabbi Yaakov's clothing to a neighbor who was a laundress. As the neighbor took the clothes to be washed, she saw that there was a louse that probably transferred to his clothes from the donkey. In disgust, the woman threw down the clothing and also cursed at the rav. At that moment, Eruv Shus entered her. And she began to rant and rave like a madwoman. She tore her clothing and threw everything around. The neighbors saw and could not understand what had happened. They immediately took her to the kever of the great Sadekes Tzolika, who had been killed al Kiddush Hashem. There was a minig that whoever had a tzara would go to the kever to pray, and they would be healed. They came to the kever, and they asked for a full shalema, a speedy recovery, in the schus of the great righteous woman. Later, they came to Rabbi Yaakov, and they told him all that had happened, how the laundress was in the midst of preparing the clothes to be washed, when she suddenly went out of her mind, and they had taken her to the kever of the tzaddikes. Rabbi Yaakov listened carefully, and then said the following, Everything that happened to that woman 
is because she cursed me when she was preparing my clothing. I did not ask her to wash my clothes, and she could have refused the lady of the house, but she didn't have to curse me. When the people heard the words of the Aber Yaakov, they understood that the woman's tzara happened because of the great honor of the tzaddik. They begged him to be moichel the woman and to pray for her refuah. Rabbi Yaakov told them to go to the kever of Sulika, and there they would find that the woman was healthy. She was sleeping nearby. When they woke her up, she was confused and she cried, and she didn't even remember why she was there. The woman then recalled what had happened and had tremendous charata regret. She came to Rabbi Yaakov and begged for Mechila. Rabbi Yaakov forgave her and warned her, be careful in the honor of Chachamim. She accepted his words with great love, and there was great simcha in the house, because everyone understood the cover of Chachamim and the greatness of Rabbi Yaakov Abu Chatzera. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. Thank you, Rabbi Goldwasser. Our barrel wine continues with the lecture entitled The Land of Israel. It's a spoken word, nine days format here at J.M. in the A.M. Do whatever you want. So then it's chaos. Falls apart. So then God has to remind them that they're Jews, right? So he sends the Plishtim, he sends the Amalekim, he sends the Kananim. All sorts of problems. And it takes time until David HaMelech comes on the scene uh, that the situation somehow becomes ameliorated. Now it becomes livable. And uh, during the last years of David, the last 20 years of David, and the first 25, 30 years of Shlomo HaMelech, so then it is finally what Eretz Yisrael is supposed to be. And they build the temple, and everything is wonderful. But people, especially the Jewish people, cannot stand prosperity. They cannot stand that everything should be wonderful, so they have to make it not so wonderful. And uh, Shlomo uh, wanders away, and then there's a rebellion, and Yerovim ben Nevot, and then they split into two kingdoms, and then they become idolaters and pagans, and that's the story. So because of that, Eretz is the most sensitive topic to discuss. And I hesitated to put it down on the sheet as one of the values to discuss, because I'm well aware that whatever one says uh, can unfortunately be subject to misinterpretation, and also because it's so sensitive, because we're living here and we're part of it, and therefore we feel it perhaps differently than in the theory of Eretz Yisrael. The Gemara says, Gimel Matonos Nosan HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yisrael. God gave us three gifts. Below Nosan HaNelebi Yisurim. And all three come with great pain. The three gifts are Torah. If you want to be a Talmud Chacham, if you want to study Torah, then it's sacrifice, it's Yisurim, it's uh, giving up hours and time. If you really want to be a great Talmud Chacham, so then it requires an enormous amount of concentration, willpower, tzisurim. It's not easy. Anyone who has ever opened the Daf Gemara and looked at it, is the page itself is sufficient to dissuade you from going further. 
that three different fonts on the page. It's uh, it's written in a language that uh, very difficult for us. We don't speak Aramaic anymore. And then you have Rashi on one side and Tosas on the other side, and then you have uh, the Rosh on the back, and nobody agrees on anything with it. It's Biyasurim. If you want to accomplish something, then you have to pay for it. The second thing the Gemara says is Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael comes Biyasurim. It's a matona. So look at the language of the Talmud. The language of the Talmud is that it's a gift, meaning we're not entitled. The language of Matona is always that you're not entitled. It's a gift. There are certain things in life that we think we're entitled to. But there, the Talmud, when it says Matona, so you're not entitled to be a Talmud Chacham, you have to earn it. You're not entitled there to Israel, you have to earn it. How do you earn it? But you're surin, right? And we can all testify what that means. The Jewish people for over the past hundred years here in Eretz Yisrael, every day is Yisurim. Every day is problems. Every day is blood. Every day is all of the difficulties that we're so well aware of. And the greatest Yisurim is that you don't see any way out of it. That's, you know, as long as you see a way out of it, then people, uh, people uh, almost are happy to absorb the Yisurim. But Yisurim on end with no way out so that already is a different level of pain and the third gift that Gemara says is Olam eternity immortality so you only gain that also through sacrifice you only gain that also through willing to undergo sacrifice and pain so because of that we have this great concept that Eretz Yisrael has to be earned now you have another concept that God promised it to us. He told us from the beginning, He told Abraham Avinu, I'm giving you this land. It's going to be yours. He told it to Yitzchak. He told it to Yaakov. He's told it to us from the beginning of time. This is your land. I'm giving it to you. The only thing is that when it comes uh, to the bottom line, uh, it's not our land. Avraham Avinu wants uh, to bury his wife, Sarah. So he has to buy the Mars HaMachpelah from the B'nai Ches, from Ephron, for, for an enormous amount of money. The Rashi there quotes the Medrash that says, Avram, the, the greatness of Avram was that he didn't say to God, but you promised me, you said it's my land. What do you mean? I've got to pay him 400 shekel over La Socher, the best mint coins. You promised it to me. And Yitzchak digs wells all over the country, and all the wells the Philistines uh, take over. They stop them up. They throw them out. And Yitzchak does not say, but you promised me that the land is mine. And Yaakov Avinu, when he comes back from Lovan, so he has to buy the land by Shem. And he doesn't say again, you know, God, you promised me. You told me it would be mine. So that's part of the definition of Yusurin. Yusurin is when you have to buy and sacrifice for what is yours. What belongs to you already. You have to start all over again. 
which is in essence what happened to the Jewish people over the last hundred years. Whether it be through uh, the Karen Kayemeth or through private funds or whatever, or purchase, you, you have to buy it all over again. Because of the fact that that's Eretz Yisrael and Nikmis be Yisur. So we have to be prepared for that. We have to realize that on one hand it's ours, it was promised to us by God, and God's promises are valid. God's contract is never defaulted. And on the other hand, uh, we have to earn it, we have to buy it, we have to fight for it, we have to bleed for it. It's not ours. And that balance, uh, that contradiction almost, uh, uh, lies at the heart of the Yisurian of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Talmud has very, the Talmud is very, very pro-Eretz Yisrael. Let's put it that way. The Talmud uh, has almost a hidden anger, and this is the Babylonian Talmud, let alone the Yerushalmi, the uh, Talmud that was written in Eretz Yisrael. The Talmud has almost a Yisurian of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Talmud has very, the Talmud is very, very pro-Eretz Yisrael. Let's put it that way. The Talmud uh, has almost a hidden anger, and this is the Babylonian Talmud, let alone the Yerushalmi, the uh, Talmud that was written in Eretz Yisrael. The Talmud has almost a hidden anger at people that don't come to Eretz Yisrael when they have an opportunity. Now, the Talmud has very, the Talmud is very, very pro-Eretz Yisrael. Let's put it that way. And on the other hand, uh, we have to earn it. We have to buy it. We have to fight for it. We have to bleed for it. It's not ours. And that balance, uh, uh, that contradiction almost, uh, lies at the heart. Of, lies at the heart of the Yisurian of Eretz Yisrael. We have to realize that on one hand it's ours; it was promised to us by God, and God's promises are valid. God's contract is never defaulted. And on the other hand, uh, we have to earn it. We have to buy it. We have to fight for it. We have to bleed for it. It's not ours. And that balance. Uh, that contradiction almost uh, lies at the heart of the Yisurian of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Talmud has very, the Talmud is very, very pro Eretz Yisrael. Let's put it that way. The Talmud uh, has almost a hidden anger, and this is the Babylonian Talmud, let alone the Yerushalmi, the uh, Talmud. Shame the name. I apologize for the technical problems that we uh, seem to be getting into um, with some of Rabbi Wine's lectures. Uh, the current one, which uh, obviously we will not be able to play to its completion, is uh, on the topic of the land of Israel. It is part of the Jewish Values series that we wanted very badly to feature over the first uh, couple of mornings of our nine days format, and we'll get to more of it coming up. Hopefully it'll work properly, and we'll be able to present it. 
16 minutes before 8 o'clock, it's a JM and AM Tuesday morning. Reminder that a defensive driving class takes place tonight, Tuesday, August 9th, starting at 6.45 at Congregation Tomche Torah downstairs at 1966 Ocean Avenue between Avenues N and O in Brooklyn, New York. You could save 10% on your New York auto insurance for three years and reduce up to four points on your license. They could also arrange for a class at your own synagogue or office. Call 718 718- Three three nine thirteen hundred for information. Seven one eight three three nine thirteen hundred for information on that. Uh, a reminder: Project Inspire has a brand new film for Tisha B'Av five seven seven six. It's called The Formula, a compelling fifty minute film presentation with insights from Rav Aryeh Malkiel Cutler and closing remarks and a special message by Rav Hillel David. It is called The Formula, How to Achieve Guaranteed Success in Avas Yisrael and Bringing Hashem's Children Back to Torah. Uh, information, it's Project Inspire. You can search for them online, and uh, we will discuss this more in depth tomorrow morning here at JM in the AM. Uh, there's a program taking place tomorrow night in Flatbush, Brooklyn. It's called Be Prepared, Remain Calm, Respond. Know what to do before Hatzalah arrives. Uh, the FJCC, in conjunction with Flatbush Hatzala, is hosting a free seminar for fathers in the community, which will focus on how to properly respond to children in critical situations where every moment counts. That's happening on Wednesday, August the 10th, tomorrow evening, beginning at 8.30, at the Flatbush Hatzala Garage, Avenue N and Ocean Avenue, in Brooklyn, New York, sponsored in memory of the Sassoon children. Information uh, at Flatbush JCC or dial 718, excuse me, 347-729-1940. 347-729-1940. Reminder that Project Witness and its original riveting documentary, Daring to Rescue, Untold Stories of Jewish Heroism During the Holocaust, that, uh, that documentary will be shown tonight at the Ferris Simcha Hall in Lakewood, New Jersey, beginning at 8 p.m., and at the Yeshiva of Spring Valley in Muncie, beginning tonight at 8 p.m. Tomorrow night it will be shown in the five towns of the unusual of Lawrence Cedarhurst, beginning at 8.30. Information 718-WITNESS. Again, that's 718-WITNESS for information. And Amcha, the Coalition for Jewish Concerns, reminds everybody that Mincha, 2 o'clock this coming Sunday at the Isaiah Wall across from the United Nations. It's an annual Tishabav Mincha service um, for Israel and endangered Jews worldwide, happening for the 39th consecutive year. Information at 212-663-5784. There's no time on here, but I believe it begins at 2 o'clock. And uh, we remind you to bring your talis and tefillin and participate in the Mincha service this coming Sunday on Tishabav at the Isaiah Wall across from the United Nations. J.M. in the A.M. And uh, with us live via telephone, we have a um, a special guest who is the uh, author of a book entitled, I'm Waiting. Becky Perlowitz is with us live via telephone. She's in the process of publishing her third children's book. It's called, I'm Waiting. It's about waiting for the Geula, for the redemption. In connection to the book, she began a project called the Geula Project, encouraging children around the world to send entries, either photos, pictures, or writings, on how they envision Geula or what could be done to help bring the Geula. 
Uh, Becky Perlowitz, welcome to JM in the AM. Welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Uh, website is morabecky.com. It's mora, M-O-R-A-H, becky.com. How did you get into the arena of children's books, and how did your interest in trying to reach children get to the topic of the Geula, of redemption? That's a great question. So um, I have been teaching children for almost 20 years now, and I've been running my own gun here in Israel for the past 10. And I always loved writing, but it was usually just for myself. And I would write, actually, books for my gun. And it was the parents in my gun who uh, said to me, Becky, you know, you really should try to publish these. They're, they like them. So um, it was the parents of the children that gave me the nerve and the courage to take myself seriously enough to give it a shot. And, um, and I did it. My first book was about Achsas, and I entered it into a contest, and I actually won. So that was a really siata deshmaya that got me started, and then I, I haven't stopped writing since. And um, really, the topics that I use are topics that are very, very dear to me and close to my heart. And unfortunately, they're topics that I don't see focused enough in children's literature. I read tons and tons of books every day, <laughs> and um, and you, this is an ikaram emuna to talk about Gula, and, and I don't have one children's book in my whole house about Gula. And I felt there was a lacking, um, and that's how this this project began. Let, let's go back to the beginning for a moment. So the first book was in my family. That's the name of the first one. Yes. And that one deals with. In my family is about Achsas. That's the one about um, that actually, Yeah, that actually, um, around the same time that parents were encouraging me, come on, Becky, you could do it, um, there was something that happened in the Jewish community uh, which involved Sinachinam, and I was so bothered. I said, well, what can I do to make a difference? And since my whole life was basically with children, I said, let me give it a shot. And uh, two days after I said offhandedly to my mom, you know, I'm going to write a children's book about access. My mom said she found in a Torah tidbit from contest about exactly this topic of writing for the topic of a clinical basis sale. So I gave it a shot. And it really, again, it was really Seattle this night. It was the first book that I ever wrote professionally. And um, then it actually came out right at the same time that the three boys were kidnapped and found to be killed and the feeling in Eretz Israel and all over the world is such a strong feeling of access um, people were, I know there were people from Chutzar who were coming showing solidarity and I just felt like throwing the book at everybody like hey, yeah. um, there's just this strong feeling of access everywhere how about that? We should have that feeling where we're not in, in hard situations. Amen. Mora Becky is with us live via telephone from Israel. The second book, Good Luck on Your Test. What's that about? So, Good Luck on Your Test is about Emuna. It's about how to deal with challenging situations in life with Emuna. And uh, the main character of the book is a boy named David Delight, and basically he's having a really bad day. Uh, one thing after the other goes wrong. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, throughout the book, people are telling him a repeated refrain of, it's all for the best, and oh, by the way, good luck on your test. And it's funny, because when I first set out to publish this book, people said, really, you're going to do a book about Amuna for children? It's a little bit of a lofty um, topic. 
but Baruch Hashem, I've gotten great feedback from parents. The, the children love it, and the parents love it. Um, I, parents have told me that like it's become a uh, refrain in their home. They're like, oh, by the way, good luck on your test whenever they have a hard situation. <laughs> Very um, good. Yes, yeah, the thing, Dad. Mo Becky is with us, uh, Becky Perlowitz. So the newest one is I Am Waiting, and uh, people can go to the website. They can pre-purchase it. They could f- help fund the exciting brand-new book with the link that's on the page. All you got to do is go to morebecky.com, and you'll see uh, a link at the top that says New Book, I Am Waiting. A- and you've gone ahead. I mean, as we said, this book is about the Gula and anticipating the Gula, obviously, from a youth standpoint. Um, you've, right. you've gone ahead and created a contest associated with this. Explain what's going on. Okay. So, basically, because I'm a teacher, I feel like my books are an ability for me to, to expand my teaching scope a little bit. And I don't want it to end just as a, as a book. I really want it to be a teaching opportunity for me and to really um, create an atmosphere of yearning for Ru'ula um, throughout the world. Uh, we should be zochah to see the Mashiach, Kenu, Geula, really, really, Bimhera, Bianino. And um, basically, I decided to make a contest, and um, I posted it to schools, both in America and in Israel, actually, people, uh, also England and Australia, um, to encourage their students, grades first through six, to write or to draw what does Gula look like to them or what they could do to help bring the Gula. And I got hundreds of responses. They were fantastic. Um, some of them just so, I could tell you some of the responses, adorable. A child was like depicting like the best day for him and he was like, Mexican food and an ice cream sundae. Um, <laughs> and then you have those people who are like, I can't wait to see the Kohanim doing their vote in the day for me, gosh. But really, like each one, I had such pleasure reading. And uh, I'm, I feel like it's not enough. I want more. I really want more people to be sending. And I thought, what a better time than the nine days um, where we have a heightened yearning for the Ula um, to reach out. And hopefully more people should send. And the, the contest has to close really soon because the book is going to go to print. Yeah. Uh, five, so yeah, five contestants will get printed in the back of the book along with a picture of them. Um, if they'd like, and it's really exciting. The book is entitled I'm Waiting. It's about to be released in connection with the book. The Gaula Project uh, has been uh, has been established, encouraging children around the world to send in entries how they envision Gaula or what they can do or we can do to help bring the Gaula. Uh, Mora Becky will include five of these entries in the back of the book. She's already received hundreds from the Anglo countries. She'd love to get more. And now during the nine days is a good time to do it. Uh, details on how to get these to you on the website? Details on the website. They could totally um, do it through the website or email it directly to my email, morabecky at gmail.com. Okay, morabecky, M-O-R-A-H, Becky at gmail.com. And the website is morabecky.com, M-O-R-A-H-B-E-C-K-Y.com. And you will include those winners and it must be very tough to choose those winners, but you'll include them in the back of that book. And uh, anybody who wants to go ahead and pre-order the book or help fund the book through the campaign can do so on the website okay. as well. Anything else you want to tell us, Mo Rebecca Perlowitz? Um, that is it. Thank you so much. Uh, I would really, I just would love to encourage parents to talk about all of these topics with their children, whether with my books or without them. Um, well, preferably with my books, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I feel like Axis and Emuna and Gaula are things that should be 
like the deceased of all of our homes. And uh, as much as I'm working so hard to put out this book, I really, really hope that Mashiach should come before before it comes out next Hanukkah. Amen. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and good luck with this. Thank you so much. dot com. The book, the latest, entitled I Am Waiting. And as we said, you can pre-order it and get information about it by heading to the website at com, And to check out her previous two books as well. Those of you who are inclined to, uh, in camp or in school, to encourage the young people out there till sixth grade to participate uh, regarding entries about how they envision Gula. Um, very simple. You can uh, encourage them to do so. Let them uh, draw those pictures and write those uh, entries. And uh, then they can get them into uh, morebecky at gmail.com, morebecky at gmail.com to be included in the contest and hopefully included in the book uh, when it is released. 72 degrees outside with 78% humidity. Winds are west at 14 miles per hour, actually 4 miles per hour. Sunny today with a high of 87. Tonight, mostly cloudy, a low of 74. And tomorrow, thunderstorms with a high of 84 degrees. Yerushalayim is at 85, a lot at 97. Up in Guilford, New York, we say hi to our friends at Camp Missoura. They're enjoying 52 degrees, going up to 83 later on. We're at 72 here in Jersey City as we say good morning at JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine continues the series on Jewish values. Torah Scholarship is the name of the uh, lecture and that follows next at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial broadcasting live. The Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org, and of course on the NSN app. Good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight's lecture deals with uh, Limra Torah, Talmud Torah, Torah as a... Uh, central and overriding value in Jewish life. Now, uh, I am going to divide the lecture into a number of different sections because the rabbis view Talmud Torah as having uh, many different influences and purposes and reasons uh, in Jewish life. Uh, so the Gemara says that the purpose of studying, the purpose of Talmud Torah, of studying Torah, especially Torah Shebaal Peh, which to us is the Mishnah and the Talmud, is La Sukei Shmatza Aliba that we should be able to arrive at the Halacha. We should be able to arrive to know what are the practices of Judaism. What is a Jew supposed to do? Part of Torah, we all know, is greatly theoretical. It's a stimulating thought. But the purpose that the rabbis placed upon it was that Torah would teach us uh, how to behave, what we're supposed to do. For instance, the Chofetz Chaim in his introduction to the Mishnah Brura, the third section, of the third volume of the Mishnah Brura, which is the monumental commentary uh, on uh, the on Orachayim, on the first of the four sections of the Shulchan Aruch, so the Chavetz Chaim says it's almost impossible to be to really be a 
Sabbath observer or Shomer Shabbat if one doesn't know what the halachas are, if one doesn't know what the rules are, and especially such a matter as Shabbat, which is rather complicated and has many different offshoots from it. So therefore the study of Torah is necessary so that you can just be a Jew to know what to do. And the rabbis therefore said, Lo Amhor et Chosid. Someone who is ignorant uh, can never be pious because he doesn't know how to be pious. He doesn't know what the requirements are. He doesn't know what the Torah demands of him. And the rabbis stressed that over and over again. They said, Godel Talmud, great is study, Shemevi Lidei Because study brings the behavior. It brings the action. It defines for us the Jewish way of life. And that's why the Rambam said, for instance, in his famous statement, the Rambam, when he wrote the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam said, anybody who has my book will need no other books. Rambam said, you only needed two books, uh, the uh, Torah Shabbat the Tanakh, the Bible, and my book, the Mishnah Torah. Because in the Mishnah Torah is every halacha that is necessary. You can know how to be a Jew from the Mishnah Torah. Well, uh, he was a little bold in saying that uh, because of the fact that there has been no book that has spawned as many books as the Rambam's work, the Mishnah Torah. Last year in Israel alone, there were over 300 books published on the Rambam's book that needed no other books. So there have been uh, literally thousands of books written about it. But the idea of the Rambam is clear. The idea of the Rambam is that to be a Jew, you have to know. And therefore, he's giving you the book that will give you knowledge. And that that's the primary purpose for the study of Torah, is to know what to do. To know how to be a Sabbath observer, to know what foods are... uh, kosher and what is not kosher to, uh, to, to know the, uh, the nuts and bolts the nitty gritty of Judaism now in Jewish life uh, there have been cycles uh, there was for a long time what we could call societal Judaism in which uh, people really weren't that knowledgeable but they did everything right because the society Uh, so to speak, uh, buttressed them and instructed them. That's the way it was in the shtetl in Eastern Europe. That's the way it was in the Mellas of Morocco. There was a Jewish society. At the top of the Jewish society, there was a top, thin crust of great intellectual scholars and rabbis and teachers who set the tone for the community. And then the community behaved according to that. So people uh, saw what their neighbor did, or they remembered what their father did, and that was their practice, even though they could not study uh, Talmud or the Poskim at all. That has changed in our time. There was a famous article written by Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik here of the Hebrew University, by Yosheber Soloveitchik's son, 
in uh, about ten years ago, or maybe even longer, he wrote a famous article in Tradition. It's been recopied many times, in which he said that uh, we have seen over the past century and past half century, really, the great shift in Jewish life from a societal life to a book life. In other words, uh, it's not anymore what my father did. It's, I'm going to look it up and see what the Mishnah Bura says, what the Chazonish says. I'm going to see what it says in the book. And that that is a fundamental sea change in Jewish life. Uh, part of it is brought about by the fact that our society has changed greatly as well. Uh, the, uh, the secularization of Jewish society uh, has taken its toll. But nevertheless, even people who come from religious families of many, many generations standing, so whereas their father uh, did what his father did, the son today uh, is not necessarily bound by that. He's going to look it up in the book. The book many times does not coincide with the practice. And therefore... uh, it explains much of what goes on within the traditional Jewish world today and the changes that have existed. People say, but I remember 50 years ago that we did this and this and this. Well, that's all true. But today's generation does not want to hear what you did 50 years ago. They want to see what's written in the book. They're following a different agenda. And therefore, to them, the study of Torah, the book defines the practice or as in previous generations the practice alone defined the practice so the first idea therefore in the study of Torah is that Torah uh, tells us how to be Jewish it gives us practical advice instructions it would be uh, if, uh, you know like if you buy a complicated uh, electronic device Uh, you hope that somehow it comes with instructions that are somewhat understandable. It always gives me pause when the instructions in English and the instructions in German differ. But you hope that you have somehow, you know, some instructions, right? What do you do? Where do you plug it in? So it would be impossible that the Durbona Shalom would grant us a Torah and hold us to this kind of standard of behavior, etc., without explaining to us what we're supposed to do. So therefore, the study of Torah becomes the instruction book. Tells us what to do. So that's a practical reason. You know, Jews don't like practical reasons. Doesn't, uh, Doesn't stir our intellect or our emotions. So therefore, there's a second area that has nothing to do with practicality. The second area is that the study of Torah is the primary mitzvah of the Torah itself. Having no practical effect and not meant to have any practical effect. The study of Torah itself is not a means the first idea that I mentioned is that the study of Torah is a means it's a means to the end of knowing what to do as a Jew the second idea is that it is not the means it's the end 
That's it. Study of Torah, that's it. And uh, that's based on, uh, on the idea that the study of Torah supports the universe. I never would have made the heavens and the earth, God says, if it would not be for the fact that there's a Torah and people will study it. So without the study of Torah, the whole universe collapses. In the Lithuanian yeshivas, and it still exists today to a certain extent, in the Lithuanian yeshivas, therefore, they divided every day of the year into uh, a mishmar, into uh, shifts, eight-hour shifts or six-hour shifts, and so that in the yeshiva, Torah was constantly learned constantly studied so that the world would be supported so uh, my father told me that uh, many times uh, uh, you know they uh, they had volunteers who, who wanted to do it Erev Yom Kippur and who wanted to do it Yom Kippur night the Gemara says on Rabbi Akiva that Rabbi Akiva's yeshiva never had a Benazmanim never had any vacation time but that only twice a year did Rabbi Akiva say, we're going to close the book and go home and get ready. One was Erev Yom Kippur and one was Erev Pesach. Now, the only two times during the year. So there was this idea of constant, constant study without any interruption whatsoever. And uh, in Valozhin, which was the mother of all yeshivas in Eastern Europe, so that was sacrosanct that the yeshiva always had people in the Beit HaMidrash studying Torah. And since uh, in those yeshivas uh, people didn't go home uh, for the holidays, etc., uh, many of them were so poor they could not go home, and many for other reasons did not go home, so there always was a critical mass of students in the yeshiva, year-round, 365 days a year, and therefore Torah was constantly studied on the basis of this, uh, of this idea, if it were not for my covenant, which is studied day and night, I never would have made the world, God says. The world can't exist without the constant study of Torah. Now, that uh, put, makes Torah, as I said, a... Uh, an end. The study of Torah is an end that's not a means to anything. Now you'll add to it that there's a higher concept that the Talmud brings to us. It's called Torah Lishma. Torah for the sake of studying Torah itself. So, uh, that it's, you know, a person can study Torah because he wants to receive rabbinic ordination. A person can study Torah because he wants to uh, uh, make a good match, right? People are looking for uh, their daughter to have a, big, a Talmud Chochem, so he wants to do it. Or he studies Torah because of all sorts of other reasons. But the rabbis emphasize that there's a concept called Torah Lishma, Torah just for the sake of Torah. And therefore the Gemara says many, many things which to us uh, don't resonate in our practical society. The Gemara says, for instance, Laolam ligras inish. A person should always study Torah 
Afal Gav the Mishkach, even though he's very forgetful, he can't remember at night what he learned during the day. That's why we have tape recordings of this lecture. <laughs> Who's going to remember, right? The Afal Gav the Lo Yoda, my Komar, the Gemara says, he doesn't understand what they're talking about. And uh, this was carried to an art form in Eastern Europe where uh, the rabbis uh, were on such a different level uh, than their parishioners uh, that most of the people never understood a word that the rabbi said. And uh, from that came the famous anecdote that uh, uh, about Revisal Kharif, Revisal Slonimer, who was uh, the, one of the great... Uh, geniuses of Lithuanian Jewry in the 19th century and he had a magnificent ability to take the most complicated subject and explain it so that even you know a piece of wood understood it at the end what he was talking about so when he came to say his inaugural uh, lecture in uh, in Slonim so he spoke for two hours and he took uh, Rabbis then had that liberty, uh, you know, and they, uh, they uh, he took a very complicated subject and he explained it brilliantly, and he explained it in such a way that everybody understood it. So the president of the congregation, the head of the kehila, came over to him and afterwards. He said, "Rabbi, I'm afraid you're not the man for us. Everybody understood you." So, in effect, they prided themselves that nobody would understand what they're talking about. But they would all sit there for two hours, two and a half hours, and made no difference. Because of this Gomorrah, they're right. Even though they don't know what you're saying, but the, the mere participation in a Torah lecture being there and hearing it helps preserve the world. And so that is a completely different view of the study of Torah because of the fact that Torah has a purpose, a supernatural purpose. And the supernatural purpose is that by our study of Torah, uh, everything keeps on going. And we say that uh, the, uh, the Torah, it says, morning and night, day and night you will study Torah. The uh, Talmud brings us the story about Yoshua Binun in the middle of the war against the Canaanites. So the angel came to kill him. He sees an angel with a sword. He didn't realize it was an angel. He thought it was an enemy. He said to him, Whose side are you on? Identify yourself. And the angel said, I'm a Hashem I'm an angel of the Lord of hosts. Atobosi, I came now. And I'm gonna kill you. So the Gemara says, What does Atobosi mean? He said, Because Yeshua didn't learn that day. That day there was no Torah. And because there was no Torah, so therefore he was susceptible that the angel could come and overwhelm him. The angel did not kill him because that night it said, by Yolan, by Amek, that night he slept in the valley. So the rabbi said, by Yolan, by Omko, That night he 
stayed in the valley of Torah, of Halacha, studied all night in order to protect himself and the Jewish people. So that's a, uh, again, that's Talmud Torah as an end in itself. And that's what the Mishnah says when it counts all the mitzvahs, and it always concludes the Talmud Torah Keneged Kulam. Talmud Torah outweighs all the mitzvahs. So if a person has a choice to do mitzvahs or to learn, he should learn. The Chafetz Chaim would say that the Yetzirah will let a man do all the mitzvahs in the world except study Torah. When it comes to study Torah, there the Yetzirah, the Sultan stands up, gets on his hind legs, and he says, no, we're not going to allow that to happen. And that was and still is the philosophy of all of the yeshivas that exist in the world. And that's why all other things really don't count. And all other things they're not obligated in. It's not part of their obligation. Uh, Without entering into the uh, political ramifications and societal ramifications of the matter. But... uh, that is the, uh, uh, that's the story with the army, that's the story with getting a job, that's the story with doing anything. They don't, they're not obligated. Their obligations is not learn. And not only that, by sitting and learning, that is how the Jewish people are defended. They're not only defended, that's how the world goes round. If it wouldn't be for that, so then uh, there is no universe. The classic example of this is the story of Shem ben Yochoi and his son. Uh, the Romans, uh, Shem ben Yochoi uh, had a very negative opinion of the Romans, and he voiced it. And there was an informer who overheard what he said, and it was the Romans had spies in the base of Medrash, and he informed the Romans that, uh, he, uh, that Shem ben Yochoi is agitating against them, and the Romans issued a death warrant to arrest him, to kill him. So he and his son, Rebelozer ben Shimon, fled into the Judean desert. And they lived in the desert for 13 years. And they lived in a cave. And they lived off of carobs. There was a carob tree. Boxer. Fresh boxer is edible. <laughs> In America, we used to get the dried boxer, which was absolute wood. But fresh boxer is edible, fresh carobs. And he had a spring of water uh, that uh, miraculously flowed near the cave, and he stayed there for 13 years. In those circumstances, he and his son reached enormous spiritual heights. They studied Torah all the time. They didn't do anything else. So when he came out of the cave... I mean, the Talmud wants to show us this uh, paradigm. Uh, When he came out of the cave, so then he walked around and he saw that there are Jews that are farming. They're plowing and they're sowing and they're harvesting. And there are Jews that are running stores. And you saw the world the way it is. So he said to them, Manichin chaye olam vioskin b'chaye shor. You are forsaking eternal life in order to waste your time with what is only temporary. 
and he uh, he railed against them to such an extent uh, that uh, that he damaged them. So then the Talmud says, so a voice came out from heaven and said, "Did you come out of the cave to destroy my world?" But, uh, you know, you're on a certain level, so you're there, right? But you leave these people alone. They're not on that level. But the Gemara says, nevertheless, that Rebshim ben Yochoi and his son, Rebelezer ben Shimon, are the examples of what are called Torah Umnatam. Their profession is the study of Torah. And we see that throughout the Talmud. We see that they didn't even stop to pray. The Gemara says that you don't, if it's Torosan Umnosan, then you only chayv and Kriyashma. So the rest of it is, you know, and that you see in the yeshivas today also. And that's part of the idea, you know, that everybody walks around with a book. People go to a wedding. People go, to, you know, they go visiting. Or they come with a book and they sit and study. So on the surface, it looks to be rude. Especially since they don't offer to share the book with you. But that's a fulfillment of this idea of Torosa Mumnosa. This is their profession. This is what they do. This is what's involved. And so therefore... Uh, the, it's an attempt to emulate the great Reb Shim ben Yochoi and his son Rabbi Elazar ben Shimon. So we have here two ideas of Talmud Torah, which to a certain extent are, uh, if not contradictory, but they certainly are different. One sees Torah as a, the study of Torah as being a practical study. And the other sees it as being uh, impractical. It makes no difference. And the Gemara says many times, it's just, uh, it doesn't make a difference whether you're studying, uh, you know, Hilchah Shabbos, or you're studying uh, Nagoyim and Oholos, which have no effect upon us whatsoever. Uh, it doesn't make any difference. Torah, Torah is Torah, whatever you study. Third idea about the study of Torah is that Torah is the uh, cure or it's the inhibitor of our evil instinct. Torah can make us a better person. So again, it's a a different idea. It's not a matter of practical behavior in terms of to know what to do. And it's not a matter of supporting the universe, which uh, Torah Lishma does. But a person has a Yetzirah, a person has an evil instinct, the person has desires, and he finds it difficult to control the desires. So therefore, the Gemara says, Borosi Yetzirah, God says, I created a Yetzirah, Borosi Torah Tavlin Lo, I have created the Torah as the medicine for it, as the antidote for it. And the study of Torah is therefore a, uh, a moral act. It makes us a better person. 
Now we'll see how the Gemara qualifies that because sometimes you meet people that know a lot of Torah and uh, you wouldn't necessarily go into business with them. So uh, the Gemara itself is aware of the uh, practical problems of saying carte blanche that Torah makes you a better person. But the Gemara therefore uh, moderates it. But the basic idea is that a person has the possibility of becoming better by studying Torah. So the Gemara says, Lolam yargi zodam yetzer tov al yetzer A person should always attempt to arouse his yetzer atov to do battle with the yetzer In other words, a person should never give up on himself. He should never say, what's the use? Because that's the greatest weapon of the yetzer The greatest weapon of evil is uh, passivity, uh, you know, uh, inertia. Can't do better. Can't be a better person. Just the way it is. I gave up on myself. The Torah doesn't allow us to give up on ourselves. That is the greatest cop-out. What do you mean? And the Gemara has all sorts of, uh, of examples. Are you poorer than Hillel? Are you richer than Rebbe? Are you handsomer than Yosef? You know, and we have all the time the older people that... Uh, that came to greatness in their later years. Uh, yeah. What do you mean you gave up? Why did you give up? Who gave you the, who so to speak gave you the permission to give up? And that's generally the Jewish people that have to look at themselves that way. Not only as individuals, but as the Jewish people themselves, as a people. So it would have been very easy for us to give up after the Holocaust. It would have been very easy for us to give up in many, many stages along the way. So, we have to always arouse our Yetzir HaTov to do battle with the Yetzir HaRoah. If you're able to conquer it that way, good, you did it. But if, however, that doesn't work, you're unable to control the Yetzir HaRoah. So the Gemara says, Yasok BaTorah. Then make Torah your business. Study Torah. Studying Torah will help you in mobilizing your Yetzer HaTov to overcome the Yetzer HaRoah. Now, what about the problem that we raised that it's not necessarily so? And we'll see the Gemara itself recognizes that. So the Gemara says, we have to understand that Torah is not acquired easily. There are no shortcuts. And therefore, Torah niknis yisurin. There are things in life that one obtains, one achieves only through yisurin, through pain, through tests, through difficulties. So Eretz Yisrael is one, the Gemara says. Eretz Yisrael niknis yisurin. So it's not only, uh, we're going to have a whole lecture about Eretz Yisrael, so I don't want to dwell on it tonight, but we can understand that, right? That Eretz Yisrael is painful. Right? It's not like, uh, it's not South Dakota. It's painful. Torah also is painful. Torah requires effort. 
it requires sacrifice, it requires time, it requires concentration. And it requires the fact that you have to give up on other things in order to acquire Torah. It's not easily acquired. So therefore, the Gemara says, easy Torah will not help you. Hard Torah will help you. Now in our time, because of the fact that we have... uh, the decline in the generation, so we've made it easier to get Torah, right? There are wonderful tape series available. There are uh, uh, books available. There's an English Talmud that is marvelous that never was available before. Now, all of these things have raised objections among certain uh, people and factions in the Torah world. Because they say you made it too easy. You have to make it hard. And that by making it easy... Uh, you lose this advantage. J.M. in the A.M. Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of Torah scholarship from the Jewish Values series. Our nine days format continues here at J.M. in the A.M. 29 minutes after 8 o'clock as we say good morning on this Tuesday. Uh, a couple of reminders. This coming Sunday, the Tisha B'Av prayer service at the Isaiah Wall takes place starting at 2 p.m. Make sure you bring your towels and tefillin to 43rd Street and 1st Avenue where the annual Tisha B'Av Mincha is going to take place. Tomorrow we have an opportunity to uh, speak about Project Inspire, uh, which has a brand new film available for this Tisha B'Av. We'll do that tomorrow morning in the 8 o'clock hour here at JM in the AM. On Thursday we'll speak about the uh, OU and their special webcast. You can go to OU.org for information about the special webcast for this coming Tisha B'Av with Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrib. Uh, go to OU.org for details about that. And, of course, Monday we'll get back into our regular format here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine continues with the series on Jewish values. This is the topic of Torah scholarship and um, information at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. problem with that is that uh, if the choice is to have this kind of Torah or to have no Torah, it certainly is better to have this kind of Torah. If the only way I can study Talmud is with the uh, Schottenstein Talmud, then I'm going to study it with the Schottenstein Talmud. And if you look through Jewish history, almost every time that anything came into being, there was opposition. When Rashi, for instance, made his commentary to the Talmud, there are those that said, you know, that's no good, right? You're supposed to loan the Talmud. What are you he comes along and explains it all to you. And the Marshal complained later in the 16th century, every time that there has been anything that has made it, so to speak, easier, it's been only begrudgingly accepted. But the... Uh, as the generations uh, decline, as we go farther from Sinai, as the problems of society increase, as the pressures upon us increase, so naturally we need all of these aids because otherwise we wouldn't be able to do it. The Gemara Darshan's on the Posik in Parshas Chukas. It says, Zosa Torah, Odom Kiyomus Bohel. This is the law regarding. If a person dies in the tent, so the law describes the, the, uh, the ritual of cleanliness and uncleanliness of Tuma and Tahara, etc. The Gemara takes that posseg out of context and says as follows, Zosa Torah, 
Odom Kiyomus Boel, this is the Torah. Eina Torah Miskayemus, the Torah has no chance to exist. Somebody who's willing to kill himself, so to speak, in the tent of Torah. Somebody who's willing to work at it. And therefore, uh, that was uh, one of the primary things in the yeshiva, in all yeshivas, was the person that was willing to work at it at all sacrifice. The great masmid who spent uh, many, many hours in the study of Torah depriving himself. So in Europe, uh, there were masmidim that studied 18, 19, 20 hours a day. And to stay awake at night, they would put their feet in cold water. They would stand. Uh, so, he's willing to die in the tent of Torah. The Gemara gives medicine uh, advice. Choshberosho, person has headaches, migraines, yasok Torah. let him learn Torah, his headaches will go away. The Revelt says he'll get a bigger headache from the Torah, so therefore the other headaches won't disturb him anymore. The Gemara says, in order for the Torah to have value for a person, that it should help him against the Yitzhah he has to be a person that does not speak Loshon Horah. That does not speak slanderous speech. The Gemara says, B'nai Yehuda, Shikpidu Alishonam, in the time of the Talmud, in the time of the Mishnah, rather. Those who lived in Yehuda, in the southern part of the land of Israel, so they were careful in their speech. They were very careful not to say things that were improper according to Jewish law. So therefore, Niskaimo Torosum Biodom. So therefore, they became great in Torah, and the Torah that they said, they were able to retain. B'nai Galil, the Jews who lived in the Galilee, Shalo Hikpidu Alishonam, that they had loose tongues, they were not careful as to what they said. So Lo Niskaimo Torosum Biodom. Their Torah evaporated. So therefore, uh, Torah is a moral force for you, but it needs a preface. And the preface is that first you have to control your tongue. If you control your tongue, then the Torah will help you control all the other things. The Gemara also says, a person has to be humble. A Torah scholar has to be humble. Now the uh, tendency of scholars is not to be humble, because that's why he's a scholar. I know so much more than, you know, than, uh, than the people that I'm talking to. So therefore, you know, look at me. So that's why the Gemara has Moshe Rabbeinu, the Torah itself has Moshe Rabbeinu, as the paradigm of the great scholar and teacher, because Oish Moshe is the most humble of all people. Moshe has no titles. Not a Rav Agon, a Tzadik, you know, the plain old Moshe. Because only in humility do we find that the Torah rests. And therefore the rabbis equated that with the verse that says, Loba Shomayim He, the Torah is not in heaven. So uh, there are many interpretations of that. 
But one interpretation is the Torah is not by the highfalutin people, the people who have their heads in heaven, who think so much of themselves, who think they know everything. So therefore the custom was amongst Jews, amongst Jewish scholars, uh, that in order to humble themselves, uh, they would uh, sign their letters, Anochi Akotam. I, the small person, right? But then it became like so de rigueur that everybody signed Anochi Akotam. So the story is told that somebody once sent the Chsam Sofer a letter, and the person, uh, the Chsam Sofer, did not have a high opinion of the person's scholarship. And the man signed it, Anochi Akotam. So the Chsam Sefer said, oh, he also thinks he's a kot. So it's a reverse uh, humility also. But true humility is necessary for Torah. In order for the Torah to operate against the Yitzharah, the person has to raise himself to the level uh, that somehow he doesn't think so highly of himself. And therefore the Torah says, that the Gemara says, Divrei Torah koshin liknosam kiklei zov. To acquire Torah is expensive as to buy golden plates. But venoach leabdon kiklei zchuchis. But Torah is so fragile, it's as easy to lose it as the most fragile crystal. Get, just touch it wrong and it gets nicked. So Torah, therefore, has... Uh, it's an elusive thing. It's on the, trying to hold mercury, quicksilver in your hands. And in order to do so, therefore, again, you have to be the container. And the Gemara says the famous uh, 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 idea. It says, This is the Torah that Moshe placed. So the Gemara takes away the word sum and substitutes for it the word Sam. Sam is an elixir. It's a mixture. It's a medicine. The Gemara says, Zoha, if a person is fortunate enough and meritorious enough, Naselo Sam Chaim, then it's the elixir of life, Torah. Lo Zoha, if he is not, has no merits, Naselo Sam Amovis, then it's poison. The rabbis therefore said not to teach Torah to a Talmud Sheino Hogun, to students who are not proper, who, who don't behave properly, who turn out to be bad, because you make them worse. Because now they think they know Torah. And therefore it became a, uh, a uh, very sensitive thing, uh, this idea of... Uh, who to teach Torah to, what kind of person. It happens many times. Anybody who's in education knows the difficulty. Of, uh, sometimes you have a student that you just can't do it. So you have to send them away. So most of the time, the student never appreciates the favor that you did. But sometimes you have once in a while student that really appreciates it and he comes back 10 or 15 or 20 years later and says, Rebbe, you were right and you saved me and that turned me around the fact that you threw me out of my ear. But that also is part of this idea that Torah is 
the building of moral character, and and, to, and if you don't want to build your moral character, right? So then it becomes poison instead of becoming a uh, an elixir of life. Now, this idea, therefore, uh, means that uh, you don't necessarily have to spend your whole life studying Torah. It's not like in the second idea. The Gemara tells us, Bochir Rebbe Elozer. Rebbe Elozer wept. Before his, before his death, he wept. Omar lo Rabbi Yoshua. So Rabbi Yoshua, who is his colleague and companion in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, said to him, Amai Kobochis, what is there to weep about? Imishum Torah, you're weeping because of the fact that you did not accomplish everything that you wanted in the study of Torah. Halo Shoninu, did not, did we not learn? Echor Amarbev, Echor Amamit. There are those that learn more, and there are those that learn less. As long as his intent was pure, that he intended it for the sake of heaven, and Torah will protect him in this world and in the next. There's a piece in the Chofetz Chaim, in the, in the, in the uh, Shmir Saloshim, rather, that the Chofetz Chaim writes that... Uh, people should learn Torah an hour two hours a day and that they should work the rest of the time. He said the elite should be held to the standard of learning a lot of Torah. But for everyone for the masses, they never intended that what? That everyone should be all day studying Torah. So therefore according to this idea right? So the, the study of Torah is for you a protection. It's a medicine for you. And the rabbis warned us, meaning woe to the scholars, that they study Torah, but they really have no fear of heaven. So I, uh, I've often mentioned that when I was a rabbi in Miami Beach, somebody gave me a book, a hilarious book written by an Episcopalian bishop, and it the title of the book is How to Be a Bishop Without Being Religious. And, uh, you know, you just have to change a little, and it's us, right? It's the same right? It's the same thing. So, you know, the story is told, the apocryphal story, but just to illustrate the point, is that two rabbis were leaving the rabbinic convention after five days of... Uh, scholarship and heated debate and everything and one turns to the other and says but Shloimi what if there is a God <laughs> so that's what the uh, that, so that's what it said woe to the right so then it becomes purely intellectual exercise and that we are not interested in that's not the purpose that's part of the criticism of uh, what is today the scientific study of Talmud, which exists in Judaic study programs around the world and in universities, is that the study of Talmud it does not 
presuppose any Yerushalayim. It's like studying Lahavdul Shakespeare or Chaucer. And so therefore, in the traditional view of the matter, that's not it. And it never will be it. And therefore, it, uh, its value is very, very minimal, no matter how many reams of scholarship, no matter how many books are written, no matter how many degrees are granted. Fourth idea about the study of Torah is that Torah binds the generations. Torah is the means by which the generations of the Jewish people, parents, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, have something in common. Because otherwise, we really don't have anything in common. My father, a blessed memory, so uh, he lived with my son, with his grandson, and with my son's children, who were his great-grandchildren. So my father was born before the Wright brothers flew an airplane. And my, uh, my grandchildren, his great-grandchildren are, uh, you know, any, uh, any uh, pocket phone, you know, any cellular phone, they can do anything on it. Uh, they, uh, you know, the computer, they're computer literate at four years old, they can do anything. My father is afraid of the machine. As is his daughter-in-law. Right? Never turns it on, Right? So what does my father have in common with that child? So you know what my father had in common? He taught them all olive base. He sat down, he taught them all olive base. He taught them the Hebrew alphabet, and then he taught them how to daven, he taught them towards Sibalon Moshe, and then he taught them the first Mishnah. So that bound them together. Well, that gave him a relationship. And you were able to span... Uh, you know, the uh, four generations in between. So that's what Torah does. The Chazal say, therefore, when a child learns to speak, his father is obligated to teach him Torah right away. When his kid's two years old. Torah Mahi, what Torah should he teach him? Torah Chivalonu Moshe Moroshokilas Yaakov, the Gemara says. Teach him that Posik. And the before Shim say, not only teach him that Posik, teach him the concept that there's a Torah in the world. That Torah Chivalonu Moshe. The Moshe commanded us and explained to us a Torah. And that will bind you together. And that will be a bond between generations. And the Gemara says, even though. The child doesn't understand one word you're talking about. He says he parrots it. So you know, children many times before they read, but, you know, but if you read the story to them enough times, they memorize it. They know the story. So they pretend that they read it, even though they don't read it. So here also, even though the child is not ready, right? Tell him, teach him. Because that will be the bond between the generations. And that's why it says in the Talmud, The words of Torah are poor in one place, but they're wealthy in another place. So the simple explanation of the Talmud is that 
regarding one subject of the Torah, these words really don't teach us anything. But regarding another subject that we're going to get to later, you'll see that it will be of value. But the rabbis also said that this goes on the generations, right? When you teach the child, it's aniyim, it's poor, right? The child doesn't understand what you're talking about. But it'll be ashirim b'mokam acher, 40 years later, it'll be rich for him. He'll have a memory of you. I, you know, I still, uh, I still taste in my mouth the piece of lump sugar that my Zeta put in my mouth when I sat on his lap and he taught me Chumash and Rashi. I was maybe five years old. And uh, if I got the Rashi correct, so he shoved this piece of cube sugar in my mouth. You know, which was the ultimate Lithuanian reward in the world. So I can still taste it. So that's my bond. That's my connection. And Chazal say, therefore, Kol HaMalamed has been Torah. He who teaches his children Torah. Malolov HaKosov, the Posik states about him, Ki'ilu. Lomdo lo, as he taught it to his son, Livno, to his grandson, Levenbeno, to his great grandson, Ad Sof Koladoras, to the end of all generations. It's all on your credit. And then the Gemara says, Kilo Kiblo Mahar Sinai. To the child, that's Mamad Har Sinai. That's standing at Sinai and hearing the Torah for the first time because that's his first experience with Torah so when his father teaches him Torah so then that becomes the Mamad Har Sinai that becomes the moment of Sinai and the Gemara also says a rule that a Torah machzeres shalah the Torah comes back to its inn we have a, we have a uh, trait not a halacha but a trait that the Gemara learns from our father Avraham Avinu that if one regularly stays at a certain inn or a certain hotel, so let's say when he starts out in the world, it's only four stars. And then he makes it big. So then he goes to five stars, he goes to six stars, he takes a suite, he rents a, a, a townhouse on the beach. The Gemara says you should go back to the same inn that you started with. Should always go with that Linda Torah Derecheres. The Torah taught us good manners. That if this is the hotel that you stayed in and it was good enough then, so it's good enough now too. Now the Gemara takes that and says that that's a rule by Torah too. A Torah Machzeres Alachsan Yerushalah. The Torah always comes back to its inn. It's meaning to the same families that treasured Torah, that supported Torah, so then the Torah comes knocking. So some generations don't open the door, but then there'll come another generation, the Torah will come back, and it will open the door. And we're living witness to it in our time. Our, uh, uh, generations of Jews that have been estranged from Torah, and all of a sudden there comes a generation that, uh, that's more than willing to learn and does learn and accepts Torah. And so the Torah keeps on coming. It knocks at the door. And that was the concept that the rabbis had, that that's what binds the generations together. 
And therefore, that's a great purpose of Torah. Fifth purpose of Torah is the honor of Talmidei Chachamim. Is that the people who study Torah also have a great... Uh, they're the representatives of Torah. So therefore, the uh, Rava said in the Talmud that people are foolish, he said, that when you open the ark, so everybody stands up for the Torah, and when you carry the Torah, everybody runs over to kiss it. So he said, people, so he says the Torah is a piece of parchment, and that they don't stand up for a Talmud Chochem, for a living human being, for someone who studies Torah. So he said, Hanayim Tapshoi, foolish people, that they don't appreciate what a Talmud Chochem is. And the Gemara therefore cuts Talmidei Chachomim a lot of slack, a lot of leeway. There's a famous Gemara about Rabbi Lozer ben Shimon. So he met a man in the street. The man in the street was uh, a very ugly person, the Gemara says. How ugly he is. So Rabbi Lozer ben Shimon, uh, in a, uh, a loud whisper, remarked how ugly that man is. So the man came over to him and he said... Why do you complain to, about me? Why don't you go to the manufacturer and ask him why he made such an ugly person? So Rebbe Lozer Reb Shimon felt very badly, and he apologized. The man said, I don't accept your apology. He met him again, and he asked for, uh, the, that he, uh, if he apologized. He asked to be forgiven again. He, he refused. So then the rabbi of that town said to him, Forgive him, even though he's wrong, because of the fact that he's a great Talmud Chacham. So we have to cut a, uh, a little leeway, a little uh, slack for people of Torah. Now, you even have an ambivalence about Talmud Chachomim who have left the fold, like Acher, like Elisha ben Abuya. So the rabbis wanted to have nothing to do with him, or Meir nurtured him. Because he was a great Talmud Chacham. So you have this ambivalence because of the fact that the Torah somehow uh, demands that we give honor to a Talmud Chacham. And Torah is the great leveler. Poor Isaru Vnei Shemaim takes a Torah, Geirim, converts, all sorts of people can be great in Torah. The Gemara, in fact, says, how come that so many Talmidei Chachomim have children who are not Talmidei Chachomim? Why should that happen? So the Gemara says that the people shouldn't say that being a Talmud Chacham is a matter of heritage. A Yerusha. J.M. and the A.M. are my barrel wine with the um, a series on Jewish values. The uh, lecture is entitled The... Torah Scholarship, and that is the latest of the uh, Rabbi Barrel Wine Lectures that we have for you here at JM in the AM during our nine days format. Information about the lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Tomorrow we get an opportunity to speak with uh, the people at Project Inspire who have a brand new film for this Tisha B'Av that's coming out. We'll explain how that works. We'll do that tomorrow here at JM in the AM. 
on uh, Thursday. Rabbi Weil is going to join us. Both he and Rabbi Weinrib are going to be presiding over Sunday's OU webcast, the live webcast of the um, Kinnis service. Rabbi Weinrib in Israel, Rabbi Weil in uh, Boca Raton. And you'll be able to access that online. If you want to register for the event and get more information, you can go to the OU website at OU.org. Again, that's OU.org. And to get more information regarding the um, the uh, webcast that's going to be happening on Sunday on Tisha B'Av itself, which has proven to be a tremendous inspiration and a great addition for everybody's uh, regular kinna service. So you can check that out, and we'll discuss it more in detail this coming Thursday here at JM in the AM. Uh, on Sunday, the uh, Mincha service, traditionally uh, sponsored by Amcha, the Coalition for Jewish Concerns. Uh, I don't have a time, but I believe it's 2 p.m. Um, Mincha starts, bring your talis and tefillin. It's at the Isaiah Wall across from the United Nations uh, in honor of uh, our brothers and sisters in Israel and Jews in danger around the world. It's the 39th consecutive year that the tefillah, that the Mincha service is taking place at the Isaiah Wall. Again, it's on 43rd Street and 1st Avenue, right across from the UN. And uh, everyone is anticipating, or I should say everyone is encouraged to uh, to come and participate. And uh, bring your talis and tefillin and a sidur, and you'll be ready for the uh, Tisha B'Av Mincha service this coming Sunday. Uh, when Tisha B'Av is Tuesday or Thursday, becomes more of a, uh, a rushed atmosphere, and uh, people are for obvious reasons, um, in a hurry to get back to work, etc. Being on Sunday may afford you the opportunity to participate with us um, this year when you may not have been able to in the past. So that's Sunday beginning at 2 p.m. at the Isaiah Wall, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue in New York City. Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures continue to um, be a large part of our nine days format here at JM&AM and his lectures on such a wide variety of topics, including hundreds and at this point, I would say thousands of lectures on Jewish history are available through his online catalog. Go to RabbiWine.com, RabbiWein.com. And uh, you can also use the phone number 1-800-499-WEIN. I know that they put together all these different uh, specials for the nine days, especially with different um, a series that are designated specifically for this time of year. So you could ask about that and enjoy his presentations as... Um, we highly recommend them. Achenu Israel and Achim Achem, brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM Dial Broadcasting Live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jamnam.org, and of course on the NSN app. And that'll wrap up our Tuesday here at JM and the AM. Tomorrow we'll speak about Project Inspire and more about our nine days format. Make sure to be tuned in. Have a fabulous Tuesday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.